Hello and welcome back to the My Favourite Film podcast with me, your host, Gav Smith. It's been a nice long summer holidays, but we're back. Um, this episode, much like the very last episode that I did before the summer holidays, is going to be quite a long one. Um, it's with Kevin Lyons of the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Film and Television, and we are talking about 2001. And before we get into that film, let's just go through the contact information as always. So if you want to get in touch with me here at the podcast, it is myfavoritefilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can catch up with me on Twitter at myfavoritefilm. Or there is now a Facebook discussion group. If you search for My Favourite Film Discussion Group, I'm sure you will find us there on Facebook. All the links are in the show notes. Website not ready yet, but it will be coming soon, I promise. Okay, so let's get into the film. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Stanley Kubrick, written by Arthur C. Clarke. And as Kevin goes into in our interview, written at pretty much the same time as it was being filmed. Originally based on a few short stories by Arthur C. Clarke and then made into one a long film. Which explains to a certain extent the three different stories that kind of go on within the film. Kevin and I have a long and spoiler-filled conversation here about 2001. If you haven't seen 2001, I would suggest going off and watching it first and then coming back and listening to our chat. So here is my chat with Kevin about 2001. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. Here's what started the whole thing. Well. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides. And what's more, it seems to have been deliberately buried. A shrieking monolith deliberately buried by an alien intelligence, starts man on a mission half a billion miles into space. With three of its five crew asleep in hibernation, spacecraft Discovery One voyages towards Jupiter. Controlling the mission is a talking computer known as hell. In the first year of the 21st century, there is strange and wondrous beauty, startling experiences that jolt and mystify, and the danger of complete obliteration. And now, your journey is just beginning. How Hello. are you? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Very nice to meet you. Good. And, and very nice to meet you too. Thank you yeah. so much for asking me along, to speci- especially to talk about this. Well, 
absolute pleasure and it, it was for me as well to, to re-watch the film actually I, I do love this film so um i think we've got a lot to talk about um oh yes just a bit let's start with why is 2001 your favorite film it's i knew you were going to start with that one it's, it's always <laughs> going to be the hardest hardest one to answer why why is any film anyone's favorite I know, it connected tough. with me in a way that no other film had ever connected with me i first saw it at the cinema I'm not a great believer, especially these days, in the, you know, the theatrical experience. I think most of the films I've ever seen in my life, I've seen on the small screen. But 2001, I saw it on the big screen yeah. for the first time. Yeah. And it was, it was late 1979. They reissued it in the wake of Star Wars. Yeah. That would have made me 17. Right. And so there I was, this 17-year-old science fiction nerd <laughs> who sort of, you know, about a year before had seen Star Wars and yeah. thought this is the best film ever made. Yeah. And then saw this. And this was proper science fiction. Yeah. Ever since then, I've, I've really not liked Star Wars because once I saw what <laughs> proper science fiction cinema was like, that was just a pantomime to me after that. So, yeah. start, sorry, Star Wars fans. I, I've been threatened <laughs> by Star Wars fans before. I'm used to it, so don't worry. I'll, I'll just take it on the chin. Yeah, but yeah, I've been seeing at the age of 17 when you're a big science fiction nerd. You know, I've been reading science fiction since I could, I could read, basically. Mm. And there it was. It was this film which was not only stunningly beautiful, but it sort of hit me on a kind of an almost... And this is going to sound a little bit pompous. Bear with me. This will happen <laughs> a few times with this film. It hit me in a kind of spiritual way. Right, yeah. If that makes I, any I sense. I can see that. I've never been a religious person. I've never, you know, never been into that at all. And I'm not saying this facetiously. I genuinely mean this very earnestly mean this i wonder if the feelings i get when i watch 2001 are the same feelings people get when they experience religion certainly for the first time it spoke to me in a way that nothing else had ever spoken to me before right i was just stunned at the end of it i, I do remember sitting in the cinema and you know do the very few end credits and they finished yeah and i just sat there yeah, and the lights went up, and this was on the Isle of Wight. You know, you, on a Wednesday afternoon when you know there was there was just me basically. The, the, the staff of the cinema got so used to me turning up on my own on a Wednesday afternoon that they, the, the projectionist would stick his head out of the little window and say, "Which trailers do you want to watch?" It was it was that sort of you know sort of Excellent. experience, and I just sat there until the cleaners started coming around. They were, Are you okay? And I, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. I'm okay anymore. It really, really sort of touched me in a way that. I mean, it does sound incredibly pompous, doesn't it? But it, it did hit me in a way that nothing else had ever done before or has done since, to be honest. Well, it is one of those films. Though. I mean, I know that the first time I saw it, for the first, I don't know, the first 10 minutes or so, you're just wondering what the heck's going on because you start with that three minutes of just... It sounds like they're tuning yes. up their strings, to be honest, but it's three minutes That's of just right. black screen. Yeah. What, black what, screen. What's this? Yeah. And can you imagine 1968? We, we kind of know about 2001 now. We know what yeah. to expect. Yeah. 1968, when it first oh. came out, you go to see a film called 2001, A Space Odyssey, yeah. and it starts with, like you say, a, a blank screen. Then you get that beautiful planetary alignment, yeah. which, oh, this is it. It's going to be great. It's great. And then it's a bunch of eight men <laughs> yeah. in the next 20-odd minutes. You, yeah. you sit there thinking... What's this got to do with space travel in 2001 and all the rest of it? I mean, it was such an audacious move yeah. to yeah. start a, a science fiction film yeah. in the dawn of man. You yeah. know? It's incredible. Well, I mean, so that, that, clever. That's, that's Kubrick, I suppose. He's, he's a 
a very brave director, isn't he? And this is a, a is. brave move and to make, did. director. And indeed, let, let's not forget Arthur C. Clarke, who was his well, yes, collaborator true, on true, this film. Yeah. This, this was his most collaborative film because yeah. Clarke, you know, was right there from the, the very beginning. And Clarke was quite the audacious writer as yeah. well. He'd come up with... If you've ever read Childhood's End, which suggests that the devil was probably an alien. Yes. Or at least our memory of the devil was, was, was from an alien visitation. I mean, that's quite a... A big ballsy move, isn't it, for a science fiction writer <laughs> in the nineteen sixties? Yeah, so, yeah. So you got these two guys who sort of knew no fear when it came to the genre, yeah. and they got together for this one-off meeting. This was never going to happen no. again in the history of cinema. Yeah. You weren't going to get these two colossal intellects colliding like that together ever again. Yeah. 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 It's quite. It was quite a. <laughs> It is quite a meeting of minds, I suppose, isn't it? And the whole way it's put together is just, like I say, as you say, it's stunning. The way it looks, the way it's it stunning. sounds. Yep. And the, and it's the way it makes you think about things. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm slightly distracted. I've got it running in the background as we're talking. <laughs> I thought it'd be nice to have it running. And I'm sort of looking at it thinking, oh, that is just so stunning. <laughs> it's just gorgeous, isn't it? But <laughs> So sorry, if I do drift off every so often, it is simply because I'm sort of like... It's fine. Oh, look at that. Isn't that pretty? I can cut those Flashing little bits lights, out. Man, <laughs> Don't you dare. They'll be the best bits. <laughs> what, where you're not talking? <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you, yeah, the bits where I'm not actually talking, they'll actually be the bits people will remember the most, I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, you, they, they were these two colossal intellects. Yeah. They, they were both sort of giants in their field. And yeah, to get them together, how lucky were we that they oh. that they got together? Yeah, you know, and it only came about kind of by accident. It was um, Kubrick was he just finished making Doctor Strangelove? Yes, and he was setting out to make what he called the proverbial good science fiction movie. Right. Okay. And you know, he was always quite disappointed by what he'd seen before. Yeah. Well, I suppose there up were up some to that great point. films, but there were some great films. Yeah, you, know, you look at like Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. There were some great films, but you know, he was Kubrick. Nothing yes. was going to be good enough for Kubrick, so no. he wanted to make the proverbial good science fiction film. And boy, did he ever! Mm. You know, I mean, he really showed everybody else how to do it. And yep. somebody suggested to him, "You need to get in touch with this guy Arthur C. Clarke. He knows what he's talking about." Yeah. And. The story goes that, that Kubrick thought he was some sort of mad recluse in Sri Lanka who wasn't <laughs> going to come and talk to him. Living in a tree, I think, was his expression. <laughs> and Clark was always really sort of gobsmacked. How do you get the impression that I was living in a tree? Yeah. <laughs> but he got a message to him. You know, he wired him and said, look, do you fancy it? And that's basically how it happened. Clark wow. said, oh, yeah, let's make the best science fiction film we possibly can. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think, I think they did. Yeah. And they did, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's just, yeah, yeah. When you see, you see, you're rewatching it now as we speak. Is it a film that you well, put you see, on often? in the background, or? yeah. Did you put it oh, on often? Or? Roughly every ten minutes. I mean, no, I do, I do, I do tend to watch it a very minimum once a year before right. this whole sort of unpleasantness with the pandemic started. Yeah. If it ever showed anywhere in London where I live, yeah. on a big screen, I would go and see it as a matter of course. It didn't matter where it was. Yeah. I would go and see it. Yeah. Um, one of the last times I went to the cinema before the pandemic started, it was showing at the Prince Charles Cinema just off Leicester Square. Yeah. And they'd got what was what they were calling the unrestored print. It was just the original 70 millimetre print. Wow. 
and I went about three times to see it there yeah. in, in about three weeks and then watched it on Blu-ray some point <laughs> well, not long after that. So, so yeah, when, it, when I say it's my favourite film, I mean, I'm not joking. I'm yeah. really not messing about here. I mean, you I'm watch it obsessed a lot. with this film. So right. I watch it an awful lot. Yeah, I never get tired with it and constantly find new things to think about it. Right. Which is great. Right. What about the, um, the books, the sequels that R.C. Clarke's written? Yeah, well, the first book, I mean, the first book's quite interesting because it was written at the same time as the yeah. scripts. It wasn't yeah. a novelization of, no, no. of the no, finished film. It is the, the book it was of written, the film, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's the, literally the book of the film, yeah. yeah. And it's quite different mm. to the film because it was based on an early working yeah. um, script. So, for example, in the book, they go to Saturn rather yes. than go to Jupiter. Yes. Because, well, they had to change it because the special effects are magnificent in 2001. And we will rave about these at some yeah, point yeah, later sure on. Will. Yeah. But the, the special effects team couldn't make um, the Rings of Saturn look plausible on ah, screen. right. It was as simply as pragmatic as that. So they said, yeah. all right, let's just change it to Jupiter. And Clark said later on, actually, it was a wise move because at that time we hadn't really got very far into the universe we hadn't even actually landed on the moon by the no, time of course not, no. 2001 was released it was yeah. months a few months later yeah but later when voyager was sent off on its mission it used saturn and jupiter as slingshots yeah. to get speed up out of the um solar system so yeah clark was saying actually in in in, in the long run it turned out that switching it to jupiter made a lot more sense than leaving it with saturn yeah so there are differences like that yeah. you know and obviously the the Apes have names. Yes. The main ape is called Moon Watcher yeah, yeah, in the yeah. book, and uh, which, of course, you know, it's got all sorts of loaded meanings as well, hasn't it? Considering where we're going in the second yeah. third of the story, yeah, yeah. Uh, the monolith is slightly different, and yeah. the ending is very slightly different, yeah. but not by much. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was it was a real collaboration. They really did work together closely on it. So, the book came out at the same time yeah. as the film, and then, like you say, he wrote these sequels. Yeah, which, you know, I've read them all. And they're okay. I mean, they're, they're good science fiction novels. Yes. But it's a bit like the film 2010. I don't mind 2010 because the only crime it commits is not being 2001. <laughs> it's a perfectly well-made film. There's many films made that are the same crime. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's just guilty of the same crime as every other film ever made. Yeah. But um, it kind of robs... Well, he doesn't rob 2001 of its mystique because it will always have that, but it sort of feels weird watching the two films back to back or reading all the novels together because yeah. the first film is so spiritual, so mystical, mm. and then the later ones, they're kind of a little bit, they're trying to explain a bit too much. Yeah. Which is a bit yeah. of a curse in particularly modern cinema, you know, of trying to explain everything. Yeah. I don't need to know backstories. Just just, just get on with the, the, the tale itself. That, yeah. That's all that matters. Just let's, let me see what's so, actually happening out there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't need all that sort of backstory nonsense. And there was a little bit of that in the um, 2001 sequels. They're, they're not bad books, no. but they're not. They're just not as good as 2001. So, and in fact, I would actually argue. Oh, I can I can hear them building that Wicker Man again. They they built a Wicker Man to burn me in when I said when I said I didn't like Dawn of the Dead on the Evolution of Horror podcast. Ooh. They're going to do it again now. I'm, I'm going to actually I'm going to, I'm going to say that the book is not as good as the film. Uh, I think the film yeah. because it is such a visual experience. Absolutely, yeah. Because it's such a you know you, Clark was Clark was a brilliant writer, but he, he couldn't was. catch capture that that what was going on in Kubrick's film. No, so no, this... I will read the book. 
and I love the book, but the film is paramount for me. It's always the number one. Yeah, because I mean, if you were to try and just make the novelization or the, the the book into the film without Kubrick's vision in there, you'd have a much shorter story yes. for one thing. Yeah, because well, I mean, it was sort of inspired by a series of, of Clark short stories. You know, yeah. like a collection of his short stories, The Sentinel, and you know, various other ones, and it yeah, it would have been very brief. And yeah. In fact, Clark has to work double hard because from the start, Kubrick has said that he wanted to make a non-verbal film. Yes. He wanted to be as non-verbal as possible. He wanted to tell the story through music and through visuals. Yes. And the amount of dialogue in 2001 is minimal. I, I don't think anybody talked for about 30 minutes, do they? And it's, when they it's, do, it's fairly inane chit-chat. You know? Yeah, I mean... It's, it's, uh, it's, although, of course, one line of dialogue actually had a, a, a life of its own outside the film, of course. Um, for some reason... When they're on the space station, um, one of the characters says, um, see you next Wednesday, which stuck in the mind of a young John Landis who uses this as an in-joke in all of his films. In America, Werewolf in London, the porn film that they go and see is called See You Next Wednesday. And you'll see it on posters in the backgrounds of all of his films. And it's just this little in-joke that he's got that for some reason, this totally inane bit of dialogue yeah, utterly banal, just stuck in his head, and he's been recycling it ever wow. since as a kind of an in joke. I, I, I hadn't even noticed that in, at the time, but yeah, no, now, you, it, now yeah. you know you'll, yeah. watch, you'll watch all his films again and start looking for see you next Wednesday. I'm gonna have to, yeah, I'm gonna watch have a John Landis <laughs> marathon and watch all of his films, it'll take me a while. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I can just find the clips on YouTube, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe someone's actually put them all together, someone almost certainly will have done, probably, somebody. yes, yeah, very likely will, yeah, 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 wow. I didn't know because <coughs> that must be his conversation with the, the the Russian scientist as he's on his way to breakfast. That's actually. right. It's yeah. the American um, uh, scientist Hayward Floyd. He's, he's when he's sitting having a bit of a chit chat on the the space station, and you can yeah. if you look closely, you can actually see Stanley Kubrick in the background. He's sitting in another room reading a oh, magazine. He? He's, he did his little Hitchcock cameo during that scene. Oh, but yeah, right. you've got this sort of bit with Leonard Rossiter, yes, who, you know, yeah. sort of some of us of a certain age will remember yeah. very fondly from Rising yeah. Damp, and here yes. he is as a Russian scientist, you know. Yeah. A very yes, British um, Russian scientist. <laughs> a very British Russian, yeah, he's, um, I love Leonard Rossiter in so he's many great. ways, but accents, they weren't really his forte, were no. they? No, yeah. it's, um, no. <laughs> Bless him. He does a good job, though. He speaks some, oh, yeah, some, he tries, he, he tries. speaks a line of Russian at the end, I think, when he says, he when does. Floyd walks he off, does. but... Yeah. Yes, which is one of those things where you think, I wish I knew a bit of Russian because I'd love to know what you're saying. Yeah. I bet that's absolute, I bet that's key to the story. I bet everybody listening to this in Russia, if there's any Russian yeah. listeners, and you sit there thinking, what's he talking about? That, that one line of dialogue explained everything. What's he on about? And of course, you know, we, we have no idea what it was. So oh, imagine if it does. <laughs> I know. What if, I mean, that's, you know, that's just one of those things that keeps me awake oh. at night. You know, what, what if that one line of dialogue was key to everything and I've never known what it was? All, the, all those years. And I've not known what this film's actually about, and I could have just got it from working out a bit of Russian. I have got some Russian friends. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get them to watch it one day and try and translate it. I bet it's. I bet it's just gibberish. I bet it's just something you know that they just made up. The sounded Russian. Yeah, it could be more coffee dear or something like that, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. It'll be just another banal line of dialogue like all the rest of it. Yeah, that's as you're saying. I mean, it is. It's a very quiet film, and most of the dialogue is completely pointless this, this it's just yeah banal pleasantries with people yeah yes it is and that's one of the things i really love about the space sequences in the film yeah 
is that we were still, you know, we, like I said, we hadn't got to the moon yet. We'd sent men up there and they'd gone round the moon and come back, but we were, we were still months away from actually landing on the moon, but we knew we were going. It was a very, very exciting time, especially if, you know, you're a six, seven-year-old space nerd like me. Yeah. You, this was the most exciting time to be alive ever. And he got it absolutely right in the film that people just got bored of it. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons that the Apollo missions that they gave up on them was because people were no, no longer watching them on television. Yeah. You know, when they landed on the moon, everybody in the world watched it. Yeah. The second mission to the moon, people were like, yeah, you know, okay, that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. And the third one, it was like, oh, they've gone again, have they? Then yeah. after that, it was like no one cared anymore. Yeah. Because it, space travel is boring. Yeah. You know, it is dull. It's an awful loss of sitting around waiting for stuff to happen (laughs) and he captures that beautifully but he does it in such a way that and he's so clever that especially you know when when we're heading towards the space station at the beginning of the second third the film is in three well maybe four parts four parts isn't it really yeah four parts because because the ending is a part of itself but yeah okay so in the second quarter you know they're traveling to the space station we've had the whole dawn of man stuff We've seen. In fact, what we ought to do, just let's just go back, talk about the Dawn of Man, then we'll come let's, to that bit because we know there's, there's a few things to say about the there, Dawn there of is. Man. Actually, isn't it? There it's, is. It's a fascinating sequence. It is. One of the most fascinating things is that uh, you, you probably know this. I, I don't know that not not a single frame of it was shot anywhere near Africa. Yeah, it's all in a, a, a set, isn't it? It's, it's all a studio in, set. It's all in Boreham Wood, at MGM Studios, yeah. Boreham Wood. Yeah, yeah. They, Kubrick. There was this story that Kubrick had come to Britain to make Lolita. Yeah, and was terrified by the flight over, so decided not to go back and never flew again. <laughs> I'm not actually sure that's true because he was a qualified pilot for a start, so he doesn't really <laughs> ring true. You know, this qualified pilot suddenly getting getting cold feet about flying. Yeah. I just think when he was making 2001, we we know that he was a perfectionist, and we know that he was a control freak. There's no other that's way to describe it. He was a control freak, yeah. and. We've, we, we know that from some of the horror stories on things like The Shining, where, yeah. you know, the man was a genius, but he could be a bit of a monster. Yes. You know, the things yeah, yeah. he did to, to his actors were quite appalling. Yeah. And he was very much a man who wanted to be in control of his work environment. Yeah. And I think he thought, if I go off to Africa, I'm going to be open to the elements. <laughs> I'm not going to have all the, the resources that I need. No. Let's bring Africa to Boreham Wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after they went to Africa, they, he, he sent over some photographers and they shot really high definition backgrounds. Yeah. And the brilliant art directors and art team combined it with a set. So what yeah. you're watching is a back projection. Yeah. And I think this is fairly well known, but some people still don't actually know that happens and they're quite surprised. Although when you do know it is, you can kind you, of you tell. You can, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't really ruin the illusion. No, but no. it's like, oh, yes, I can see it now. I can see it now. And it probably but depends on the, the quality of the print you're watching as well. Of course, if, you, if you've yeah. got... It actually, the better the print is sometimes the, the, the more the illusion is damaged. Broken, you know, on yeah, Blu-ray, yeah. you sit there thinking, oh, I can actually see that. Yeah. I, can, I can see the grain in the background. I shouldn't yeah. be able to see that. So, yeah. But this sequence, it starts with... Um, it, it actually sets up the entire film. It's vital to the film, despite what people say. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, it's all right, bro. I don't like the bit with the monkeys. Well, sorry, guys, but this is actually core to the entire meaning of the film. That The human race has started to evolve. We're not quite there yet. We're still somewhere in between apes and humans. Yeah. And somewhere on, on the sort of plains of Africa, we've gone down an evolutionary dead end. Yeah. We're, we're dying. 
we're we're losing it. There's been a drought. We're being picked up by this leopard, yeah. and it's not a good, not a good. In fact, it was really weird that around the time that the film was being shot, evolution suddenly became the thing. All right. You know, he started shooting in '66. Was released in '68. In 1967, um, Desmond Morris's book, The Naked Ape, came out. Right. Which touches on matters of evolution. Yeah, yeah. You'd also got in, in late, like November '67, the Hammer film, Quatermass and the Pit. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is also about aliens interfering it with is, the development yeah, yeah. of human human existence. Planet of, of the yeah, Apes yeah. came out in '68. Yes, I mean, did. if if that's not about evolution, yeah. you know, what is it about? Yeah. You know? There was this weird little sort of cluster of cultural things about evolution in 67, 68. Yeah. And um, 2001 is very much a part of that because it, it shows the human race going down this dead end. Yeah. And one morning they wake up and something has arrived. Yes. And we don't know what it is yet. They never know what it is. It's no. just this monolith, which is awesome yeah. built to the the um, what they call the golden ratio it's like is it four three yes two or four three one or something yeah, like yeah. that yeah but yes beautiful it is, jet black thing yeah. they originally they, they wanted it to be a sphere i think it was going oh, to be right. like a milky sphere and you at one point you were going to be able to see what what the ape creatures were seeing inside the monolith Ah, right. like a cosmic television set i'm so yeah. glad they didn't do that i'm so no, glad no. they left it enigmatic no. Yeah. But this thing, we don't know what it does, but it, it does something yeah. to the apes, particularly to, to the, the lead ape, Moonwatcher. He touches yes. it. It's a wonderful scene where he, he takes ages and ages. I'm miming it. You can't see it because it's a podcast. But he's, he takes ages to go up and touch yeah. the surface. And it's such a great little performance. so tense. Oh, yeah. He touches it. And this monolith does something to them. boots them up the evolutionary ladder. It gives them an idea. And the idea is, these bones that you've got lying about from these dead animals, wouldn't it be a good idea if you stopped being vegetarians? And I speak as a vegetarian of many decades standing here, but yes, stop being a vegetarian for a while and go out and bash that pig on the head with his bone (laughs) because you might actually survive if you do. And so that's that's what he does. It helps us. Now, I'm going to interpret the film as it okay, goes along, on. he says, pompously. <laughs> but it will be, it will be, I have to make it clear, this is my interpretation. It's not right. Yeah, fair enough. And it's not wrong. No. Nope. It's not better than anybody else's. It's not worse than it. It's just, you, you can do that cliche of putting 20 people in a room, show them 2001, ask them what it's about, and you'll get 21 different yes, answers. Yes, you're probably right, yeah. You know, because everybody will have yeah. a different answer. Some people will have more than yeah. one. You know, it's, it's, it, everybody will interpret it differently. Yeah. My interpretation for this first part, and this is the, the part of the key to it, really, is the first thing we do when we have this bone, the wonderful new learning that we've got, is we learn to hunt so we survive. Yeah. The second thing we do is commit murder. Yes. We go to the drinking pool yeah. and we kill the leader of the opposing tribe. Yeah. At which point, my interpretation of it is that the aliens, whatever they were up to, we never know what they were no, trying no. to achieve no. with all of this. We never find out. No. And that's great that we don't mm. find out. I, I love not knowing. Mm. 
whatever it was, I think they abandoned it. I think they write it off as a as a lost cause. Yeah. We did this thing, and look at them. They've just turned into murderous monsters. Mm. They abandon it. They put a warning signal on the moon. Yeah. Clark called it a burglar alarm. Right. He put it, they put a burglar alarm, alarm yeah. on the moon. They bury it because if we can get to the moon and uncover yes. it, we're in grave danger of going further. And so they want to contain yeah. us because we're a failed experiment. Yeah. And that's my sort of interpretation of what that part is all about and that sort of becomes key to my understanding of the yeah. rest of the film. like i say it's not right no. and it's not wrong no. and it's not it's certainly you know it's just an interpretation yeah. it you certainly know? works with uh, what will be the the second quarter and the end of that second quarter when they set exactly. off that burglar arm i suppose and it, we don't see what it does to them but they exactly. all start holding their heads like there's some huge noise that's maybe the killing heads, them so yeah. and then you flick to which is was my thing was like it's meant to be the signal to to the the monolith around jupiter saying look out they're coming yeah. and also to try and sort of put them off a little bit a bit like a sort of you know that mosquito thing they used to have which only affected under 25 <laughs> yeah. do you remember being under 25 yeah. that was so long ago. <laughs> not at all but i think it was a little bit like that that it was meant as i know it, 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 it was a lifetime ago but it was um i think it was like that you know it's meant to sort of put us off because they still saw us as animals yeah. and the last time i saw it on the big screen i actually had this sort of minor revelation that actually the aliens are quite dim yeah when you think about it be. they did all this the one thing they didn't do was account for human curiosity yeah they thought that they could contain us but of course they can't contain us we get to the moon we uncover these uh, monolith in the in the tycho crater yeah. and it triggers this signal yeah. to um jupiter and you would think and probably the aliens would think that be it. They, they won't bother following that. That's scary, isn't yeah. it? They're not going to come after that. But human human curiosity, they didn't account for yeah. that. So, of course, off we go, yeah. you know, into the third quarter of the yeah. film. And it's only at this point, actually, that we reach 2001. Yes. Because the, the second quarter is set in about 1998, 1999, because yeah, the, the mission is 18 months later. Yeah, they never make it particularly so, clear, but yeah, that yeah. 18 months later makes you think it exactly. must be 18 months later. Earlier. This must be 2001, so everything else must be sort of 98, 99. Yeah. That, that, I think, is how yeah. it works. Like you say, it's not, you know, you don't get this caption December no. 2001 or anything no, like you, that. You're just left to your own device. You get a caption at the start, the, the Dawn of Man caption. The but Dawn when we go man. into that second yeah. quarter, there's, there's no caption to tell you roughly where you are, what time no. period you're in, or where you're going. You're just suddenly no. in space. In fact, the, the one of the most famous shots in the entire film is that extraordinary jump cut. Yeah, the match cut, yeah. It takes us millions of years, yeah. which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. It had been done before. You know, Michael Powell had done it before yeah. in A Canterbury Tale, is it? Where, you know, we've got the, so, yeah. uh, the guy with the eagle. The eagle turns into a spitfire yes. as it's as flying it flies around. over, yeah. So it wasn't a particularly new no. idea. But this is incredible. The, the bone being thrown into the air, which then turns into a spaceship. Yeah. And... An extra resonance, if you've read the novel, it doesn't. You don't get this from the film, but if if you read the novel, it's extraordinary that that bone that he threw was the first weapon. That was yeah. the bone that he killed the leader of the tribe yes. with. The spaceship that we see after we do that match cut in the book, that's a nuclear weapons platform. Oh, right. So we've jumped millions of years in evolution yeah, from a bone yeah, to yeah. a platform of mass destruction. Ah. Which is a again just adds that extra resonance to the the, the story. We will talk more about the, these things because they do feature later in yeah. the book, but not in the film. But yeah, the, that's the idea. Is this is meant to be an orbiting 
weapons, weapons platform, system. right? I, I do remember so that. I, I, did, yeah, I read the book a long time, a long time ago, but I was going to reread sure, it before yeah. this, but just didn't get time. One of those things, you know, finding time to read a book's not something that's easy to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, no. Tell me yeah. about it. I wish, I wish. I, I was actually listening to the the um, audio book this oh. afternoon because I thought I really ought to listen to at least some of it before I, you know, just remind I should myself. Should have thought of that one. But yeah, you know, it is a nuclear. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. You see, it's great. Um, but yes, it's a nuclear weapons right, yeah. platform. So you know, you've got that sort of jump of a million years, but we haven't actually changed. No. We're still trying to kill yeah. each other. We're just doing it more efficiently on a bigger yeah. scale. You know, there's a there's a streak of cynicism that runs through all of Kubrick's work, yes. really. But it's it, 2001 in many ways is a very hopeful film yes. in many ways but he's still got that cynicism he can't quite let it go he still sees us quite bleakly i think yeah. you know it's uh it's all part of his world view yeah. and um so we get this this cut we're now into you know we, we get to the moon we the monolith gets triggered and we send off a crew yes to go and have a nosy about yes. aboard the, the beautiful spaceship oh. the discovery yes. The nerd in me will demand that everybody accepts that this is the most beautiful spaceship ever seen on screen. It's gorgeous. Yes, it's phallic, yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, sort of Freudians out there would have a field day with it. But, you know, for me, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous spaceship. It's absolutely wonderful. And off they go. There's a crew, loads of them, are, I think three of them are in um, hypersleep. Yes. And there's two that are awake. awake. And then um, Hal. Bowman and Paul. Yeah. And then Hal, yeah. who, you know, he's the real star of the show. As as Keir Dulay, who play, plays Bowman, has said many times, you know, Hal's the real star of the yeah. film, and that's okay. Yeah. That's all right. He's, he's cool with it. But, yes, Hal, Hal 9000 is the onboard computer, if you don't know. Um, beautifully, beautifully voiced by Douglas Raines. Absolutely stunning voice. It's, it manages to be both friendly and utterly sinister yes. all at the same time in the same voice. Yes. Absolutely wonderful. And it's HAL 9000. Yeah. And Arthur C. Clarke spent many, many years trying to persuade people <laughs> that it's not one letter along from no. IBM. That wasn't what it was meant to be, which is what everybody thinks yeah. it is, HAL, IBM. Yeah. No, it's not. It's... It stands for, it's, it's actually explained in the yep. book, it's how stands for, and I'm going to have to try and read this. Got it here if you want. A bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> Heuristically programmed algorithmic computer, yep. H-A-L. I have no idea what any of that means, but that's that's what he's called. Yep. So, um, yeah. So he's not IBM. No. But he's there, he's on the ship, he's he's running the ship. Yep. The whole um, IBM thing works, doesn't for it? for everybody else. It does. It's, <laughs> a, it's one of those things, it's like sometimes... I always hate it when people prefer the myth to the yeah. fact, but sometimes, and this is a good example, the myth is actually too good to ignore, it is, isn't yeah, it? You yeah. know, just, yeah, I mean, why, why would you not? And, you know, Halley's there, you know, is really to sort of over, look over the mission, just keep everybody yes. going. The downside to it, of course, is that Bowen and Paul are absolutely bored to yeah. tears the whole time. You know, they spend the whole time jogging around the, the centrifuge in the middle or having inane conversations with people yeah. back back yeah. home. Slipping because they've got nothing food. to do. They've just got to be yeah. there. Yeah, so and playing with iPads, which is a, a, a nice little touch. They've got <laughs> they these, have, um, haven't they? I can't remember what they call them. Communication pads or something. But they're iPads. They are basically, yeah. You know, yeah. so there's there's Clark and Kubrick and their design team coming up with, with iPads long before yeah, yeah. Apple Absolutely, came up with yeah. them. It was definitely are, a tablet so computer of some sort. And it wouldn't yeah. 
it wouldn't surprise me at all, actually, if Apple didn't look at 2001 and think, that's a really good idea. Why don't we do that? It's, it's highly you know, possible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so many sort of scientific inventions have come yeah. about because people have seen them in Star Trek or seen them in, you know, Absolutely, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, so these poor poor astronauts are bored to tears, yep. sitting on this, this spaceship sort of trying to pass the time. Yeah. And then it all starts to go wrong. Yeah. And it goes wrong very, very slowly. It does. I mean, that's, very that's one thing about, about this film. There's a pacing of the film is um it's a really slowly paced film i mean you get the whole the the beauty of it's amazing I and mean, I, I love the bit where he's jogging around mm. because they must yes. have built that yeah. entire set because they follow around oh, the entire did. circle yes. of it yeah. yeah and you just think that's just that was in the largest stage at shepperton yeah. it was they had to build it and it's a, a proper vertical centrifuge that they had the camera running along uh, a groove in the middle yeah. of it so the groove would open behind as it was pulling back from them yeah. and the seal very quickly so you couldn't see the joint. Absolutely stunning. Oh. It is one of those things, until you read about it, you do sort of, how did they do that? Yeah. yeah. You know, it is a genuine, how did they do that moment? Yeah. And, um, I mean, now they do it all with, yeah, the, so, you with know, you get special effects when they do it all with CGI and whatever else, but... CGI. Yeah, as, as Keir Delay, bless him, said, there isn't a single frame of CGI nope. in this film, and it still looks bloody brilliant. It still looks better than most modern films, does, I have yeah. to say. And I know I'm biased because I'm doing this, but it does. It looks stunning. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and, you know, so we're on the ship anyway. We're on the Discovery. We're heading for, for Jupiter, and things go wrong. Yes. And we're saying that, you know, it goes wrong slowly. It actually went went wrong much slower originally. Really? Because when the film first... O- oh, yeah, when the film first... Can't imagine it going slower. At the premiere, it was 19 minutes longer. Wow. When it first premiered and when it had its first engagements in the big American cities. Kubrick called it back right. to tighten it up and he cut 19 minutes out. A lot of it was from this, sec- this section. Right. Apparently there was yet another spacewalk. You know, there's already two, yeah, yeah. and there was apparently there was a third one, um, and this 19, min- 19 minutes of footage became the Holy Grail mm, for two thousand and one mm. fans. It was missing for years, mm. and then it turned up in two thousand and ten in of all places a salt mine in Kansas, wow. which was being used to store old film reels, wow. and it was uncatalogued. In, and they've had they've had this footage for eleven years, and they have not released it. And I am not happy. Ooh. And I I want to see it. And yeah. I don't care if it, if they reinstate it back into the film or if they just give it to me separately. I need more two thousand and one because two and a half hours or whatever it is is not long enough for anybody, <laughs> frankly. And we need it. But this sequence would have gone on a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. And he decided to. He made some cuts to the Dawn of Man sequence, but this was the one which which took the most yeah. cuts I think I mean, cuts to the Dawn of Man sequence probably you possibly would right. notice so much because no exactly there's yeah. no dialogue there's nothing happening yeah. it's yeah but this I think not having seen the footage I have to say I think even so I think he was probably right mm. to cut it it is quite a long sequence it is yeah. quite a slow sequence I don't mind that I like a slow film mm. so I'm quite happy with that but yes I could see that as it stands it tests people people's patience yeah. I think yeah. An extra 19 minutes could have possibly thrown people over the edge. Yeah. I mean, I seem, so we get these sort of, you know, very... I seem to recall seeing a scene so, that, I don't know whether it's part of that 19 minutes, but on the second quarter when he's on the space station, he makes that phone call to his little girl. I seem to recall a, a right. scene where he then speaks to a salesperson about buying a bush baby, which isn't in my version that of the film, be. but I, I'm sure I've seen it's that not, somewhere. It's not... 
you may have seen it, it may have been one of those things it sort of escaped somewhere yeah. you know some, you know how it happens sometimes people just get hold of this footage no one knows why but no one asks yeah. there, there's footage from Star Wars for example yes. from the, the big dogfight at the end which is cut, turned up on the fan circuit yeah, yeah. which was missing from all versions of the film so it does yeah. happen so yeah that would make sense I could see that that would yeah, happen yeah because it seems odd that, that he would do that girl asks for a bush baby and then nothing happens of that but I guess and then it, yeah, so much he just forgets about of nothing it. happens in it. Kind of, well, that's fair enough. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's Kubrick's daughter. Oh, is it? If you didn't know the little girl right. in the yeah, if you, in case you didn't know that, and they just filmed her answering general questions about her mm. birthday and fitted mm. in dialogue to work around it. Yeah, so, um, works really well. But anyway, but back at the yeah, plot, sorry. <laughs> we are. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a long old. Forgot plot. about that. There's a plot. Things are, <laughs> You think there's, there is a plot, yeah. It's astonishing how many people I, I know who don't like the film. I do know people who don't like the film. Yeah. I don't know why I know them. I should just cut them out of my life, really. But I do know people who I, don't like it. I think I, I can understand no story, why. Is there? I can understand why, because if you watch it oh, from wait. a certain point of view, it's just visuals to classical music. It is, to a lot and that's extent, why yeah. it works. That's yeah. why it's so beautiful, to a lot of extent. Yeah. It is. But there is this story, and this story is... It's kind of a subtle story. Yes. I'm just sort of glancing at the screen now, and we're getting the bit where he's actually landing on the moon. Yes. We've only got to the point in all the time that we're talking, <laughs> he's finally landing on the moon. I don't think anybody's... Oh, yeah, people must have spoken by now because he's been in the space yes, station. Yes, yeah. And this shot of this sort of the, the, the space the, the, the space dock door opening like a flower, yeah. that goes on for oh, ages. so slow, you know? yeah. Kubrick was not afraid yeah. of letting us watch these beautiful special yeah. effects in action. But it's the speed yeah. that these Today, things would have Today, we take it for granted... It is. And back then, 1968, nobody had seen anything oh. like this. We take it for granted now because we see all the time in science fiction films. CGI has made it so easy. Back then, this was mind-blowing yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if some people actually saw this and then saw the moon landings and were really disappointed. <laughs> thinking, it's a bit oh, yeah. dull, isn't it? It's a bit murky. Look at it. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's, good. it's not like 2001, is it? There's no blue Daniel so, playing or anything. <laughs> <laughs> There's no Blue Danube. No, I, I bet there was, actually. My, 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 funny enough, my, my dad woke me up in the middle of the night to watch the moon landing right. on television. And I have this sort of vague memory of sort of sitting on the, on the sofa, wrapped up in, in, in um, a blanket, watching it, and thinking, Doctor Who did that a few weeks ago, <laughs> and he was much better in Doctor Who. So, yeah, I was doing it with Doctor Who. I wonder how many people did it with 2001, yeah. thinking, oh, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, as you get older, you... Yeah, you get older and you realise that actually that was pretty incredible yeah, what they did. Yeah. Not as incredible as 2001, of course. Oh. So, yeah, anyway, it, it's all going wrong for our crew. They're back on the ship and it's all gone horribly wrong. In fact, we've had a, an intermission at this point, which is quite useful because we've just had our little intermission talking there. In in the sort of the full version of the film, we have an intermission. There is, yes, which is another three minutes of the a... same screaming strings that you get at the very yeah, start. It's yeah, it's Ligeti strings sort of like howling away, which is marvellous. I love Ligeti's music yeah. and it just works so brilliantly yeah. in this. But yeah, so we've had our little intermission. Now we're back on the discovery and how he's losing it. Yes. And one of the really cool things about Hal in this film is that we've become almost godlike and we've created life. We've created this artificial intelligence. And we have, because we're human beings, we've screwed him up royally. Yeah. We've really messed with yeah. him because we've given him all the neuroses and paranoias that we have. We've inadvertently programmed that into how we find out in the book and we find out in, in the second film that the reason he goes a bit nuts is because he's been given conflicting orders yeah. about the mission yeah. and he can't. 
you know, he's like a child in a lot of ways. He can't process that sort of that, that schism that he has. You know, should I should I do this or should I do that? He hasn't got the, the ability to work that out. So he just decides to kill the crew, which seems a bit of a drastic, drastic step. But there bit, you go. Yeah. He's trying to protect the mission. He's just, you know, he's doing his job too well, frankly. Yeah. He's, um, he's try- he, he needs to get one of them to whatever it is that's in orbit around Jupiter. Yes. So to protect him, I'll kill all the others. Yes. We don't need them. We've got here. We've got here without yeah. them. We just have one of them. Yeah. And so we get this, this process where he switches off the life support of the three that are in um, cryo sleep. He, a brilliant sequence where he sends Paul out to investigate a broken, supposedly broken module. Yes on the outside of the ship, yeah. and then rams him with these little pod yeah, things yeah. that they fly yeah. around and outside. Yeah. Brilliant sequence. Oh, it's brilliantly run, yeah. done. It's a fantastic bit of editing in that sequence. Yeah. Wonderful. And it's getting and so, so leaves, slow as they float through space and so everything slow. happens in slow motion. It's just... Of course. And it's one of the few films, few space films. Gravity was, was did this as well. And that, I just remembered Gravity because at the time of recording this, it had been on yeah. TV earlier in yeah. the week. That... You don't hear sounds in yeah. space. It's, it's, it's lovely. So that. you get this eerie sight of, and all you get all the time is you can only hear what's inside the space yeah. helmet, which is, <gasps> yeah, the whole, and really, it, it sort of really sort of sets you on yeah. edge the whole time. This breathing, especially when there's, there's a marvelously timed moment when he's reaching out to grab Paul, and he goes, <gasps> yeah. Because he holds his breath yeah, while he's he trying stops. to reach you, and you suddenly notice he stopped breathing. He stopped breathing. Oh my god, he stopped breathing! You know, and it's so clever, but so yeah. subtle. Yeah. You know, nowadays they trumpet that in oh. a big sort of a big way. You'd have fanfare, lots of overacting yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah, big fanfares. Yeah. But that was just like this subtle little moment where he stops breathing. You think, oh my god, is he is he dead? Oh no, no, he's, he's just holding his yeah. breath. Yeah. Well, it's the same things that I and said at the start about marvelous, the yeah uh, the sort of brave filmmaking in that. He oh, uses yes. sound design yeah. in the film more than he uses action on screen sometimes. Yes. That it's it's the sound that does did, everything. And the silence yeah. sometimes and silence, is, yeah. is the is the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just you you'll have Paul floating around outside with just and Bowman floating around outside yeah. with just the, the breathing and no music. Yeah. Yeah. So you're forced to listen to their physicality yeah. almost. We haven't got that cop out of this is a film. No. You know, you're actually in that helmet with them, yeah. with that breathing. It's like Wow, yeah. you know, and it, it's used so creatively right through to the end of the film. That breathing is used incredibly yeah. creatively. They use, they use and, it um, differently when uh, Bowman's in the spaceship the second time because he forgets his helmet. That's right. So you then hear the noise that's inside right. the pod, yeah. and then outside it's all pod, silent. Yeah, right. yeah, and you get that wonderful sequence where he has to blow the um, oh, emergency yeah. evacuation thing to get yeah. back into the ship. And it blows, and when he comes in, there's no sound, there's no explosion because nope. there's, there's no, no sound air. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it, they get it absolutely right, and then the sound slowly builds up as the air rushes in. Yeah. in. And my God, that scene is a real yeah. edge of the seat yeah. one for me. It's just, you know, Keir Delay said that he, he really implored them, could we just do it the once? Yeah. <laughs> this is so scary. He was hanging on a wire, basically on a piano wire, and they were just wow. lowering him up and down without a helmet. So he's bashing his head oh. on the set as he went around. So he said, please, let's just get this in one yeah. take. This was Stanley Kubrick he was well, talking yeah, to. Course. You know, the man that would easily do 20, 30, 40 takes of someone walking across a road until he thought he was happy with yeah. it, you know. So um, I don't know how many takes, takes they few actually times. took, but yeah. I can guarantee it wasn't It wasn't one. I can guarantee that. <laughs> I can guarantee that. No. But yeah, so he gets back in, and then you get probably 
for most people, I think the most famous scene in the film. Yeah. Which is where Bowman murders Hal. No two ways about it. He murders Hal. Hal is this artificial intelligence, and it's heartbreaking that you people will tell you that there's no emotion in 2001, that it's a very cold film. Nonsense. I I don't Mm. buy that at Mm. all. This scene. This scene is so emotional. Yeah, where he's pl- where Hal is pleading with Bowman yeah. not to not unplug to do him. it. Yeah, you know, so please, Dave, don't do that. I don't think you want to do it, yeah. and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And then he just sort of he reverts to childhood yeah. and starts singing Daisy to yeah. him. You know, it's like honestly, it is a really upsetting and heartbreaking well, moment. So anybody who says there's no emotion in this film, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Just watch that sequence. Yeah, because it, I mean, Bowman's gutting. Bowman's holding in his emotions isn't he because he purposely doesn't speak to yeah. Hal through any of that until Hal says I know a song would you like to hear it then he kind of there's that's almost right. a tear in his yeah, eye and he says me, yeah, yeah sing to me that's right yeah. yeah because he has a relationship with Hal course, if yeah. you if you sort of watch during that whole sequence when they're on on the way to Jupiter he shows him his artwork yes he does yes and he talks to him like he's a, a friend yeah. you know and, and Hal seems to be taking an interest yeah. in him and of course on a much more prosaic level once he kills Hal He's in orbiter around Jupiter on his own. own, There's nobody else there, no one to talk to, and he has no idea what's out there. So this is a highly emotional moment for him, and it's a highly emotional moment for the audience. It's... uh, I've been known to, you know, have something in my eye during that sequence, as indeed I repeatedly do. The last shot, which we'll talk about in a moment, which always makes me cry, but there we go. Um, But yeah, so, you know, Hallie's dead, long live Hal. And um, Bowman... He doesn't have much choice, so he decides he's going to have to leave the ship. Yeah. He's got to find out what's out yes. there. And what's out there is a gigantic monolith. We don't really get that perspective from the film. No. But the monolith in orbit around Jupiter is meant to be huge. Yes, it is, isn't it? meant to be massive. Yeah. It is. And in 2010, we, one of the best things about 2010 is we hear Bowman's last words before he disappears. Yes. He sends a message when he's going into the monolith and he says, my God, it's full yeah. of stars. I must admit, I, I, I got so that mixed up somewhere because I thought that was in 2001. And when they didn't say it when I rewatched no, it, I was like, no, no. I'm sure he says that. But yeah, it is 2010. Yeah, a it? lot yeah. of people think it's in there, but it's in 2010. Yeah. But I kind of wish it was in 2001 because it's such an evocative... Oh. Lie, yeah. my God, yeah. it's full of stars, yeah. you know. But then, you know, we get to see that because we get... I was going to say the Daisy sequence was, you know, the most famous bit. It's not. I'm talking rubbish. This is the most famous it bit. It is, isn't it? This, you know, the Stargate, yeah. which is... This is where podcasts don't work, because <laughs> at this point we should just disappear for 10 minutes and play the play the, the damn thing for people yeah. to watch, because it's absolutely extraordinary. Or 10 minutes. And it was, <laughs> it's a good half now. <laughs> it's, it's, it feels like that, but it, it, it isn't. It's actually quite short, actually, but it is gorgeous. It is. I mean, oh, yeah. it's stunning. This yeah. is Doug Trumbull doing the special effects yeah. on this. He was using something called Slit Scan, which gave that yeah. sort of rushing effect. Yeah. And they were, they were splicing in um, micro-photography of cells. yes. And things and colouring them yeah. and manipulating Different filters on all sorts and of things. This, yeah, it was stunning. It yeah. was absolutely and what brilliant! You get all these this glorious footage of these amazing things, and they keep cutting back to Bowman's terrified yeah. face. Yeah. Sometimes you just see an eye. Other times it's just like, oh my god! Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So we're all sitting there thinking, "Wow, this is amazing!" But they would keep cutting back and like, "No, it's not. It's bloody terrifying, yeah, yeah. isn't it?" Well, you know, you can imagine if you're going through that. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to experience that as a first-hand reality yeah. must be terrifying. And of course, it was this 
sequence was key to the film's success. When he first opened, it wasn't a massive success, surprisingly. It did okay, but it wasn't mm. a huge success. It became a success when people noticed, you know, theatre owners noticed, that it was 1968. <laughs> you know, you've got the straights turning up to watch you, but there are an awful lot of heads turning up as well, and they were down the fronts, chemically zonked out of their brains, <laughs> lying on the floor in front, right at the bottom of the screen, timing their trips for this sequence yeah. and just, just losing it during the sequence. Yeah. And they very cleverly, they, they reissued it with a new tagline right. on the posters, the ultimate trip. <laughs> and, of course, this tied in so much with the prevailing zeitgeist and the kids were flocking to this film, yeah. sitting through all the slow bits. And they were, pro- they were probably stoned out their brains anyway, so everything was going slow for yeah. them anyway, so it didn't matter. Yeah. But then, you know, they, they presumably they timed when to take their... Went to drop their acid, man, and they timed it just right so that it would kick in just as that sequence started, yeah. you know. And that was what really sort of made the film the big success at the box office that it was with these kids turning yeah. up just to experience the ultimate, the ultimate trip, trip, you know. Yeah. And the ultimate trip. And there's there's been rumours ever since that Pink Floyd, their song um, Echoes, was written to coincide to synchronise with the Stargate All sequence. Right. I'm not sure I'd buy that. I think that's just one of those happy coincidences, to be honest. I mean, it, you know, when was when when was Echoes written? Early 70s? I mean, where did they get a copy of the yeah. film from? You couldn't just go down Blockbuster no, and rent it. You, know, you had to no. have a print of the film. You know? no. no, exactly. I think it's just one of those happy accidents. But you can find this on um, YouTube. Go and have a look for 2001, Pink Floyd Echoes. Right. And... Even for a cynic like me, sometimes it is quite startling when right. the, the tone of the music changes and the images start to change with it. You think, maybe? Mm. No, of course not. Of course they, not. No, maybe. maybe. Yeah, they could have <laughs> put their music to the the same music that's yes. on the top, I suppose. You know, you know what the soundtrack is at that they point. Could, you could. Exactly. But I mean, it works. Yeah. It works. And of course, you know, sort of. Pink Floyd were all part of that same scene. Absolutely, yeah. The kids going to, to watch yeah. it and, you know, get out of their heads. Exactly. So they, they were probably, yeah, they were probably the first ones down the front <laughs> getting stoned and watching the damn thing, but there you are. But yeah, so you get this gorgeous sequence, which is quite hallucinatory without chemical input. Yeah. You know, just say no, kids. This is safer and cheaper. Trust me. You know, this, you know, you're not going to do yourself any damage. It's not going to cost you any no, money. Just watch. You don't need the drugs. Watch it in the watch it in the dark. Watch it on the biggest screen you can yes. find. I've seen 2001 on an IMAX screen. Wow, and I bet that's amazing. That is an experience. It's just, you know, the whole of the film is amazing, but the Stargate on an IMAX yeah. screen, honestly, it kind of pins you to the seat. You know, you're just like, oh my. God. God, you know, you you do feel like you're tripping when you're watching yeah. it on a screen that size because it takes up the whole of your vision. Yeah, there's no peripheral vision no, at no, all. It's just not, these no. images yeah. flying at you. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with the, with the Stargate, oh, I envy you so much that you, if you <sighs> haven't seen it the first yet, time, yeah. Know, just, yeah. To experience it for the first time, don't you, don't be tempted to go and watch the Stargate on YouTube. Go and watch the film to get yeah. the full experience and of if, it. It is one. If you can Sorry. get into a cinema and actually watch it in a cinema on a cinema screen, yeah, if you can so get into a cinema and see it, yeah, television screen, yeah, exactly. Watch it on the biggest screen you can yeah. possibly find because it is it is such an amazing moment. Or just get really close to the telly. Get really close. Yeah, just do, just do what the kids were doing in '68, man. Just go and lie down in front of the TV. But yeah, um, yeah so you get this Stargate sequence, and what does the Stargate mean? You know, that's one of the big questions yeah. over, the, over the years. What is it? What's actually happening? Yeah. I mean, my idea is that this is 
obviously it's a conduit to wherever the aliens are. Yes. And it's, I don't think it's actually a space conduit as such. I think it's into a different dimension. I think these aliens don't even belong to our dimension. Possibly, yeah. They're so far away from us. And that's why it's so traumatic for Bowman to travel through this thing. Yeah. You know, and you, he ends up this is gorgeous solarized footage of landscapes yeah, yeah. where we assume we're landing on the alien planet, yeah. and then he steps out of the the pod, and he's in a Regency hotel room. Yeah. Well, he doesn't step he's out, does he? Because you see it. He doesn't. You have he his does, point he kind of, of view. Out, he sees himself. He? Yeah. And then you become. That's him right. In his and he's looking yes, where the pod was. And the pod's not there. Slowly. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah, and then it happens again where he's sitting at the table having yeah. dinner and he thinks he hears a noise and he looks over and he sees himself as a really old man. He bet he ages in about five yes. minutes. Yeah. In this sort of overlapping series of yeah. existences. Think it's it, kind of it existing it f- in three different... Four times, four isn't times, it? Yeah, isn't it? From, from, from the pod. Phases, isn't it? Yeah. Slightly older, then from the, the old man and then the, the dying older, man. Yeah. Then the old man and then, then yeah, the dying man, exactly. Yeah. So you've got this extraordinary sequence. And... There, there was some question about whether Kubrick ever really seriously thought about showing us the aliens, mm. and he did. One of the things I found at the um, the archive when I went to have a look is right. photographs that he had taken of um, members of the crew. He hadn't even got as far as getting an actor, but members of the crew, they'd got little silver dots and strips all over them. Right. The idea was they were going to shine very powerful lights on them, so you get these kind of glowing figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he could never get it to work. No. He never got it to work the way he wanted to. And again, I'm so glad he didn't. Yeah. Because the fact that we don't see them yeah. makes it all the more enigmatic. Yeah, and certainly the, the special we effects of 68 would not have... Wouldn't, they, wouldn't, yeah. they, they, were, they are brilliant special effects. And as I speak, the Discovery is drifting serenely yeah. across my television screen. And it looks gorgeous. Magnificent effects. <laughs> but to create a living creature... That's very different, isn't it? Yeah. They are... To be fair, they only just get away with the apes. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the apes are the great makeup, but, you know, they could have been better. Yeah. So actually you created an alien in 66, 67, 68 when it was shooting. That was a bit of a bit of an ask. Yeah. But I'm so glad they didn't. Yeah, I am. We hear them. Yeah. yeah. But the bizarre thing is that when he's in the room, you hear these voices. And you're not sure at first that they're voices. You go, go back and just watch that yes. sequence again. The noises he's hearing, they're very organic. They are, you're it right, yeah. Like, I didn't get them as voices, I must admit. To my ears, it sounds like two people talking at a distance, very muffled. Right. It's almost like, and again, this is my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's my interpretation, yeah, yeah. nothing else. I think that these are the alien scientists watching him. Those are the voices of the people monitoring, saying, well, what are we going to do now? You know, we, this, we didn't expect this. They were supposed to be contained. Yeah. On Earth, and yeah. one of the buggers has got here. What are we going to do with yeah. it now? And I think this is what you know, this kind of brings it down to a sort of fairly mundane level. But I think that is genuinely what's happening. I think they're a bit confused, the aliens. Yes, yes. They've got this person. What are we going to do with him? What they do with him is extraordinary.
they age him, like you said, and he's lying in bed, and wonderful shot. He kind of sit, half sits up and reaches out for something, and the camera does a reverse shot, and it's the monolith. The monolith is back at the end of his bed. And we zoom into the monolith, and then suddenly we're back in orbit around Earth. Yeah. But we're not alone. There's a fetus. There's a bloody fetus floating <laughs> around the Earth. Not a small fetus what? either. It's a giant space fetus. It's a fetus. bloody huge <laughs> space fetus. It's, this is the star child. This, I yeah. mean, what star child is has been a question of debate for so many years. Yeah. And again, interpret, you can interpret it any way you want to. My yeah. interpretation is, for what little it's worth, this is what the aliens have decided to do. They, they've sent it back as a warning to us. That's where you are. You're not even born yet. Yeah. You've got great potential, but you yeah. haven't even started yet. So don't come messing with us. This is yeah. what we think you are. You're not yeah. even born yet. So that's my interpretation of it. Other yeah, people yeah. have other interpretations. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. I think the Star Child is not meant to be taken literally. I don't think no. we're meant to literally believe there's a gigantic fetus in orbit around the Earth. I think it's, it's a symbolic thing. And how you interpret that symbolism is entirely up to you. Yeah. In the book, interestingly, um, I mentioned earlier about the nuclear weapons on the, the, the orbiting platforms. Yes. In the book, the star child arrives back on Earth and we actually sort of get stuff from his... I say his, I mean, that's been slightly sexist, but I think he's referred to as a he. I mean, we yeah. don't know. It's, it's an unborn child. Well, we don't it, know what stage it's at. If it's Bowman, then... If it's Bowman, if it's Bowman... Is it Bowman? If it's uh, well, yeah, yeah. Again, he's open to I, I kind of assumed it was, yeah. but yeah. Kind of assume yeah, it is, right. yeah. But yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. we're going to call we're going to call him him for now. Yeah. And in the book, he detonates all of the orbiting platforms ah. around the Earth, as presumably I always felt as a sign, as a sort of sign of power. Yeah. You know that, that makes sense. Yeah. Again, don't mess with us. Yeah. We're back, and we've destroyed all your defenses. Yeah, and this we've destroyed all your defenses, and to us, you're just this. So imagine what's mm. going to happen, you know, if we turn up on mass, you know. So don't if, mess with us. Pop out again, yeah. And it's it's really clever in the book that his final words in the book, uh, I'm paraphrasing slightly, said um, the Star Child looked upon the Earth and didn't know what he was going to do next, but he would think of something. And that's actually the last bit of writing we get about Moon Watcher, as well. After he's ah. killed the opposite member of the tribe. Clark Wright, right. Moon Watcher, didn't know what he would do next, but he would think of something. So uh-huh. he's in the book, he's explicitly tying this ape man to the fetus. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. we, we haven't come very far. In their eyes, in the aliens' eyes, we have not come very far at all. We think, no. oh, yeah, because we're human, we're magnificent, millions of years of evolution, and we've reached the pinnacle, we're wonderful, fantastic. To yeah. them, it's the blink of an eye. Yes. You know, from their perspective, we're, we're nothing. We're, we're just... You know, this unborn fetus orbiting the Earth. Yeah, yeah. And there you and go, again, that's 2001. So, it is, uh, yeah. That, <laughs> that's a pocket <laughs> version of it, isn't it? <laughs> a pocket version of it. And if that hasn't inspired you to go and watch it, I don't know what will. So, um, But yeah, I mean, there's so much else in the film, isn't it? I mean, it, virtually every scene has been interpreted in one way or another. There are yeah. lots of learned articles out there. And yes, you can, you know, if, if you watch the film for the first time you really love it i can highly recommend just going out and buying every book you can find on the subject yeah. there's several really good ones um arthur c Clarke's book the lost worlds of 2001 is a particular yes. must because it's got uh, the, the short stories in there plus it's got early versions of the scripts 
which were right. different to what was uh, seen on screen. So, yeah. you know, from a, a sort of um, a production side, that's that's fantastic. Um, there, are, there are several really, really, really good books on 2001. And I suspect if you go on uh, any sort of academic websites, you will find thousands of learned articles explaining what 2001 is about. All of them will be right and all of them will be wrong, just like my interpretation. So, <laughs> well, uh, yes, it's possible, you pick, yeah. the, you pick the one that suits you best. You yeah. pick the one that you can, you can live with, you know. And, yeah. uh, but that's the beauty of it. You know, I've had, I have had some real knockdown, drag out fights with people that I highly respect over what 2001 <laughs> means because although my interpretation is not right, I will not tell it, hear anybody else tell me it's bloody wrong. So, you know, it's your opinion, yeah. <laughs> it's my opinion. You know, don't you dare come around here telling me I'm wrong. But um, yeah. yes, I suppose you know, there's, only, there's only Kubrick that knows. Only Kubrick and Clark. Only Kubrick yeah. and Clark know, and they are sadly both no longer with us. Exactly, so yeah. We're never going yes. There is a letter. I should have looked this up before I come on. There was a letter. I think it's in, I think it's in James Agar's book about 2001 that, that was written by um, a woman who'd been to see the film. She wrote to Kubrick's with this very long analysis of what she thought the film was about. And Kubrick right. wrote back to her and said, you're the only person that's really understood this film. Ah. And... So, you know, but then I wonder if Kubrick and Clark really knew or whether they had lots of different interpretations themselves and could, could yeah. switch backwards and forwards between, you know, whatever, I was gonna say, whatever they... I was going to say that Kubrick, obviously, as you said, you put this together as being the ultimate science fiction film. Um, yeah. Did, did, do you think part of what he was doing was just trying to show a unique and realistic version of space and there was kind of a story around it that R.C. Oh, yes. Clark had. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what it was. I mean, he did make sort of you know, comments early on that he always felt that space travel in earlier science fiction films had been a bit silly. Yeah. And he's right, you know, and, even, and that carries on, that carries on into the whole sort of Star Wars and post-Star Wars things where you can't do a dogfight in space. That's yeah. just not physically possible. We accept it because it's fun. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, if you're looking for a serious bit of science fiction... You can't have a dogfight in space, you know. It's that's more fantasy than science fiction. Yeah, and I think Clark really, um, Kubrick really wanted to show that space could be a terrifying place. Yeah, two thousand and one is really scary in places. Oh, yeah, you, it is absolutely. When yeah. you tap into their isolation, especially when they yeah. go out to do the spacewalks, and you realise yeah. just how fragile their connection to the spaceship is. Yeah. It's terrifying. Really, yeah, space yeah. is big. It's bigger than we can imagine. And it's emptier than we can imagine. Yeah. And that really plays with our heads because we're so used to, you know, even something as large as the Earth, that's a finite mass that we can sort of get our heads around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go out into space and you look out the window. You, you know, when I look out of my window here in London, I can look across the city and I think, right, there's the city over there. And just yeah. over there, there's, there's going to be, you know, Essex in that direction, all the rest of it. You look out the window of a spaceship and there is nothing between yeah. you and the next star, which might yeah. be thousands of light years away yeah and yeah. if anything goes wrong no one's coming to help you no as we find no. in the film there's you know yeah. you, you can't there's, find there's up no the AI there, and no. say we've had a few problems <laughs> with that computer you know you are on your own you're stuck out there and so it is a genuinely scary place space yeah. and i think kubrick wanted to show that i think he wanted to show how mundane life in space yes. could be that yes. we become very used to that danger very quickly and we would adapt yes. to it. And again, that's part of the evolutionary thing, isn't it? That we can't yes, evolve is, yeah. to not be scared of space because we're there now. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, and like the mundanity thing. 
sorry, go on. Well, like I said, the, the, the people of the world got fed up with the mundanity yeah. of space travel, you know, yeah. and even, even the space shuttles, you know, they're sending spaceships up all the time now to oh, the yeah, International yeah. Space Station, and you yeah. never see them on television because it's like, no. oh, you no. know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like catching a bus now, isn't it? It's yeah. become this... I mean, those astronauts sitting there, you know, they, I can't remember which one of the astronauts said it, but it's, it's a brilliant line. He said that the scariest moment of any of the Apollo missions was that moment as the countdown reached five, when you realise that you're sitting on a bomb that was designed <laughs> by the lowest bidder. <laughs> you know, you realise, yeah. oh my God, you know, and it was real sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. Sort of sellotape and sort of blue tack stuff back then, you know. It's a, a, it's a surprise they ever got off the ground, isn't it, really? Well, there's a fantastic story about Buzz Aldrin. You, you probably know, you know Buzz Aldrin, second man on the yep. moon. He's yep. real sort of advocate of, of space travel. Yes. Will happily punch out, um, you know, sort of conspiracy theorists who said it never mm. happened. He, he's, mm. he's an old guy, but he, he'll happily chin anybody he who will, tells yes, him it didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. But he's got this marvelous thing that he does with people. He got so fed up with people coming up to him and waving their mobile phones at him and saying, "You know, there's more computer power in there than there was that got you to the moon." <laughs> And he's now taken to say, can I see your phone? He's looking at him, very nice, throws it in the air, lets it clatter to the ground. He goes, yes, but it doesn't land as well as we did. (laughs) (laughs) Which is marvellous. (laughs) Nothing to do with 2001, but he's just one of my favourite No, but it's a great line. (laughs) It's a lovely line, yeah. And of course, you know, when, um, when, when Buzz and Neil arrived on the moon, you know, they must have had in the back of their minds, they had seen 2001, NASA arranged yeah. screenings of it for all the astronauts, oh, right. you know, before they went off. They must just have in had case. in the back of their mind, just <laughs> in case, you know, this is a training <laughs> film. You know, if you see a large black monolith, get back to the ship and report it quickly. You may need backup. <laughs> Do not touch. But, um, yeah, but can you imagine walking on the, on the, the surface of the moon when you've overcome that first sort of elation of being the first people to do it and then looking around and thinking... I wonder if there is a monolith up here. I wonder if they had buried something. That paranoia, it must have been in there. It must have Gotta crossed be, their minds yeah. at least once. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that's, you know, the um, cultural impact of 2001, you know, that people, it, right back there. I mean, now, today, you will hear, I'm going on a rant now. Brace yourself. You will hear idiots saying that the moon missions never happened. Stanley Kubrick yep. faked them. Have you seen the moon mission footage? Stanley Kubrick was a perfectionist. He would not have shot that crap. Trust me. I mean, that, no. that's smeary, barely. That's not Kubrick. He would not have done that. Trust me. No, we not went at all. there. We got there. It was the most amazing yeah. scientific adventure the human race has ever in, in, engaged in. Yeah. And I will not have idiots telling me it didn't happen. It's no. just it did. It was no. glorious. These people were super brave people, brilliant minds that that yeah. sort of did everything behind the scenes. And put people on the moon and got them home safely with one yeah. with one only one accident Apollo thirteen and they still got them home safely. So absolutely uh, yes, they're still coming home, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. So exactly. Yeah. So you know it's, yeah. it's two thousand and one buys into all of that. You know the I think one of the space shuttles was Discovery, wasn't it named after yeah, the, the ship in this? Yeah. It's been massively influential in all sorts of areas. You know we mentioned earlier that yeah. maybe I don't know maybe Steve Jobs saw it and thought that's a good idea. Let's make one of those. It's, it's possible. It's highly possible. Possible. Yeah. Yeah. But we do know yeah. that Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Christopher yeah. Nolan, they've all spoken yeah. even more passionately than I do about this yeah. film because, you know, they're filmmakers who wanted to replicate what they were doing. I think the one that, I think, yeah, Close Encounters, which you, you've covered, I think yes. it's the first one. I've covered already, series, yeah. wasn't it? First one covered, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, I think, came close for me for that kind of spiritual sort of, you know, intensely yes. moving 
kind of science fiction. Um, Interstellar, yeah. I think, comes close Does, to that. Yes. Yeah. You know, but um, but nothing really matches. No. 2001, you know, it's just no. so beautiful. Just, and, and it's still it's ingrained in pop culture, isn't it? It is ingrained. I mean, you can until 1968, you could have listened to also Sprach Zarathustra. Yeah. You could have just listened to that and thought, yeah, it's a yes. piece of music. Yeah. Now you think, oh, 2001. Yeah, absolutely. It's got no other meaning now other no. than that's the theme tune to 2001. Whatever absolutely, cultural yeah. meaning it had prior to 1968 is long gone. Absolutely. And, um, in fact, did you know, by the way, talking of the music, we, we ought to mention this, that there's, there's another soundtrack. Did, were you aware of this? Some people are, some an alternate are. soundtrack? When Kubrick was editing the film, to get the timings right. right, he used temporary tracks, which were Blue Danube, also Sprague yeah. Zarathustra, the Leggetti pieces, Atmospheres, and Lux Eterna in particular, just yeah. to get the, the timings of the cuts right. And right. he commissioned Alex North to write a score. Right. Now, Alex North had worked with him before, you know, he'd, he'd worked with him on Spartacus and on Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. So they, yeah. they knew each other quite well. And he composed an entire score, had it recorded, and then Kubrick said, in fact, he didn't say, this is, this is the really sort of harsh part about this, he didn't say, I don't want to use it. He just decided, now nah, we'll stick with what we've got. And North <laughs> found out when he went to the premiere, wow. when he was sitting in the, in the auditorium and thinking, that's not my music, what's happened to my music? And wow. he, he just didn't bother using it. It's since been released as a, a, a CD. Yeah. So you can hear it. And I have, of course I have. I've tried playing yes, it and syncing it up. And it's, it's a great score. You know, Alex North was no slouch when it came to no, writing no. film soundtracks. Yeah. But it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work not. anywhere near as well. It just no. doesn't work anywhere near as well. It's a much more uh, traditional film yeah. score. Yeah. Not a bad thing. You know, traditional no. film score is a very good thing. But this is not a traditional film and it needed it's not. that sort of... Yeah, it needed that, that, like you said, the screeching strings, you know, yeah. the Getty stuff, yeah. the, the, the howling choirs and all the rest of yes, it. That's what absolutely. makes it so good. The, the, whenever the monolith's on screen and you get those howling yes. choirs, that's, yes. it's beautiful but eerie but scary. Eerie. But it, it's, I don't know, it gets in your head and you just want to switch it, it off, but you don't want to at the same time. You don't want to switch that. And it's also one of those things where you think, is that music or is that the noise of the monolith? Is that what the monolith yeah. sounds like? You know, if it's uh, uh, yeah. deliberately sort of not clear, is that the noise it's making or is this just yeah. atmosphere soundtrack music? It's yeah. brilliant. Do, do so the apes well hear done. that? Yeah. Do the apes hear that? Yeah. Is that yeah. what Bowman's hearing when he's the old man in bed at the end, you know? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow, what a way to spend your last few minutes as an old man to hear you yeah, know, like playing at full volume at you. <laughs> yeah. That's quite something, yeah. isn't it? But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because, I mean, that is a... That's, is one of the sounds in this, or one of the, the noises in this, that just makes you go, I, I, yeah. I just want more of this to keep going, but it's... The sound yeah. design is very rarely talked about because, obviously, it's such mm. a visual film. But, yes. you know, you touched on it earlier, the silences. They're so mm. important. That, mm. that breathing, with the, you get the breathing again at the end when he's in the, in the hotel room, when he first comes yes. out of the, the pod, when he first sort of, whatever happens to you to bring him out of yes. the pod, you can still his hear his helmet's on, isn't it? So, yeah. And it suddenly stops. And that's when yeah. you realise we've made that first transition yeah. from the young bowman to the middle-aged bowman. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. you know, we don't hear the breathing after that. And then he goes to the old yeah. bowman, then to the star child. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's hugely important that all the sounds, you know, everything from, from Hal's voice, you know, if they got anybody else to do Hal's voice, oh. would it have worked? You know, it wouldn't have worked, I don't I think. Don't it had to be Dr. Frame's so. voice. It was, yeah. It's just, it's just so, the way it's so calm, but at the same time, so 
creepy. Yeah, it's almost... I suppose it's the same as a lot of computer speak programs are now, in that yes. if you took something like Mac speak and made it speak a few lines, it would sound a bit yes. like that, but not quite it as would. human. Not, that's right. It's somewhere between, it's got that it? slightly sort of robotic sort of... We can tell it's not human, but yeah. it's doing a bloody good impression of one. It's that yeah, kind of uncanny exactly. valley thing, but with sound, isn't it? We think... Yeah. We think it's human, but it's not, and that's what upsets us, I think. That's what sort of throws us yeah. off balance. It sounds human, but something's not right about just the diction and what it's saying. You know, the way, yeah. sort of, the, the way he's saying things, you know, at the end, you know, and he's apologising to Dave about killing all the crew, and he's so calm <laughs> and sort of like, yeah. like, yeah, he's just something I had to do. It's just part of my job, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, and well, you this, can see this... Bowman sort of, the rage in Bowman at that point. Yeah. He's very sad when he kills... How? Because he's got this. Yes, he doesn't want to kill Hal, does he? No. Emotion. He doesn't want to kill him, but he's so bloody angry with him yeah. for what he's done. And yeah. that voice is not helping. No. That voice is there's... really not helping with that rage because he's so yeah. calm. Yeah, you there's know? no emotion in it. That. It's always there. When he's in that pod trying to get in, I can't do that, Dave. Yeah. Yes, you can. Don't no, don't don't be so <laughs> bloody calm about it. You know, it's, it's yeah. just it's so sinister. It's so yeah. creepy. You know, yeah. he is the villain of the piece, but he's also the victim. Which yes, is very clever as well. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. you can't hate Hal, despite the fact that no. he is a murdering robotic git. You can't hate him <laughs> because it's not his fault. He's misunderstood, no, poor boy. So, yeah, uh, it is. But I was going to ask you actually what you thought of of Hal and whether you're not. Is he just saving the mission, and he has to kill these people in order to save the mission, keep the mission going? Hal is conflicted. Hal just doesn't yeah. have the human experience to deal with what he's been told. You know, we learn from the book, and we learn certainly in, in 2010, yeah. that he was told that the crew were expendable. That, right. You know, yeah. he was told, it's your job to get them to the monolith, or whatever it is. I don't know what it is at that point, but it's, it's your yeah. job to get them to Jupiter safely, but the crew are expendable. Yeah. And so this creates this, this sort of like psychotic break in him almost you know it's cognitive dissonance i've got these two opposing ideas that i have to deal with and he doesn't have the experience to to deal with that he's an artificial intelligence and he's super smart but that kind of thing only comes from experience yeah and he hasn't had that experience he hasn't you know quote unquote lived long yeah. enough to understand that so of course he's this, this poor computer he's been told two different things and he interprets it in his own way, he interprets it in a way which is catastrophic. Yeah. But can we really blame him for that? We created that. We made him paranoid. We made him neurotic. We gave him two sets of orders. It's our yeah. fault that this happened. Yeah. You know, Hal is entirely innocent in this, despite the fact that he kills, you know, three, four people. <laughs> he's entirely innocent in all of this because he just doesn't know what he's doing. You know, it's, no. um, he's a very complex character. And it's really strange that he's actually more human and more complex than any of the human beings in the film. The human yeah. beings in the film are kind of um, chess pieces just being moved about. Yes. You know, they're being shunted from one bit to another. It's In that sense, it is kind of cold and unemotional. Yeah. And yes, you would expect that from astronauts who are going on a very long space mission. You'd expect yeah. them to be kind of cold fish. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want people yeah. like me who sort of blow up at the slightest thing. You know, that would be <laughs> disastrous. But Hal does. Hal is like me. Hal will go off on one when he, things yeah. aren't going his way, you know. So I sort of, I feel great sympathy for Hal, although, 
he's a murderer. <laughs> so that creates a cognitive yeah. dissonance in me, doesn't it? So yeah, it's. Uh, it's but did yeah, he deserve to die one. like that? <laughs> yeah, no. And you know, to, to a spoiler alert for 2010, he does come back. Yeah, he is back. Um, it's slightly different because he's now, he now appears to be part of the Star Child as well in 2010 yes he's not the same Hal he's been freed from you know whatever it was that was constraining him so we don't we don't always see you know don't necessarily see the end of Hal and I'm kind of glad he came back because I I, yeah yeah. I have a soft spot for Hal he couldn't (laughs) help it the poor boy was misunderstood (laughs) (laughs) all in his programming isn't it yeah it's all in the programming and indeed um, Clark will talk or did talk quite extensively about the uh, monolith programming the ape creatures so programming is definitely all part of it so yes it, 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 it's interesting and this has literally just occurred to me this is quite interesting that oh, if we follow my interpretation that right we're a failed experiment yeah the aliens failed in their programming when they acted godlike and yes. we fail in ours we do ah, the exact yeah. same thing we become godlike Without, and yeah. create life and we do the ex- we make this exact same mistake yeah. That the aliens do. They, yeah. In the end, you know, they might be sort of, sort of, you know, posturing about up there with their star child and all the rest of it, but yeah. they actually know better than us in the end. No, no, no. That's quite, give... quite interesting. I have, that one, I've literally just come up with that on the, off the top of my head. I'm going to have to go away and think about that. You can, you can, you can yeah, no, just sort of email what's it later. Certainly works, think that one. It certainly works. You know, you, we gave an artificial intelligence enough power in order to have power over man and kill man if it needed to and it took that power and, and did exactly that which is the exactly same as the aliens yeah. did with the apes of course so, yeah. exactly we, yeah we, yeah, we both fits. lose control of our creations you know to yeah. sort of become murderous and and you yeah. know it is a sort of wow <laughs> the film is very much about technology looking at it now they've yes. just been out and they've just rescued the module from outside so they've had the space right. and they're looking at it with all these schematics and stuff it's very much a film about technology yes but it takes a very jaundiced view of technology you know the yes. technology fails it's not yes. good it and you know you get time, that yeah. wonderful sequence which is it's it's so funny, but it's also that that streak of cynicism. I think when um, on his way to the space station, Haywood Floyd goes to the toilet, and there's a list of instructions <laughs> as long as war and peace. You know, how to use the zero G toilet? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tr- trust me, you get to a certain age, you know, and you know, like me, you're a certain age and you're diabetic. You can't hold on to it for more than about thirty seconds. Reading that thing would have probably killed me. So there's this lovely joke that you know we've come this far, we can take people to the moon. We haven't even sorted out the plumbing yet. Yeah. You know, the toilets still don't work without masses of instructions. So yeah. it, it's a film about sort of technology not being all that great, really. Yeah. You know, it yeah. lets us down. So, uh, well, even under the, the the sticky socks that they wear, wear in order to not float away <laughs> in zero gravity. Which I think that's that's is a wonderful great. scene, isn't it? Where they're sort of, yeah. walking upside down on the on the ceiling, and again, done, done actually done for real. That she's actually walking. Yes. She's not walking upside down. She's walking flat, but the camera is spinning round to give the spinning illusion round, that yes. she's working yeah. that way. And it's all done without the aid of special effects. It's just a camera yeah. spinning. So just practical effects, yeah. Oh, so brilliant! It, you know these. It's as we said, we were saying earlier. That, you know, now they do it all with CGI, and it just wouldn't yep. look as good. But doing it with a practical effect like that, it works perfectly. Because and it's from it's a school right. of filmmaking where people were inventing stuff still. Yeah. You know, yeah. we'd come from Georges Méliès, who invented most of it in 1968. Yeah. They were still inventing stuff. I'm not yeah. entirely sure they're inventing stuff anymore because it's just too easy to do on a computer. 
I think you're probably right with that one. Yeah, I think some yeah. of the, the films that still use practical effects work so much better because you go, oh, they do. That, that looks yeah. real. When they start putting a bit of video on it, it's like, oh, it's not quite the same. I don't I don't mind CGI as long as it's used no. properly. I don't mind CGI mm. being used to sort of smooth over the gaps, remove the wires, things like yes. that. I'm happy yes, with that. Absolutely. That's not cheating. Yeah. That's filmmaking. That's how it works. Yeah. It's yeah. when you've got... And, you know, they would have done this in... in um, God help us if they remade 2001. Oh, God, I, can't even, I can't even consider that. There are some films that should never be made. 2001, Jaws, probably Star Wars, um, Close Encounters. These films, should, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they should never remake them yeah. because they're absolutely perfect as they are. Leave them yeah. alone. Unless right, you can yeah. come to me and persuade me that you've got something better to offer, I don't want to hear about a remake of 2001. Well, if they did... If they were going to re- the remake it... Sorry, they'd have on. to bring something new to it. And they wouldn't. Yeah. They'd have the astronauts floating around as CG people. Mm-hmm. And they they never get that sort of sense of weight. Even in weightlessness, you need a sense of presence. Yeah. And yeah. they never really get that with humans in um, CGI. No. You know, it's, no. it's so difficult to do that. And you know that these guys were actually hanging on wires with yeah. Kubrick lying on yeah. the floor with his camera pointing yeah. up at them to get that sort of yes. weight. And he works brilliantly. Absolutely yeah. brilliantly, and well, it's the, now, the wonderful yeah, shot of when just... she gets the the pen out of the air. Pen, that is because so they shot clever. that through a glass a glass screen, didn't they? And it yeah, was stuck it's a highly the glass polished bit of, bit of glass. Yeah. yeah, and she just walks up. And there's one of the documentaries. The guy said, "Oh, you know, I was a bit disappointed in it." You know, what it was? Yeah. Really, oh, she, you know, she should have twisted it a bit. And no, that would have ruined the illusion because then it would yeah. look like it was stuck. As and the fact that she just walks up and plucks it, yeah. apparently out of thin air. It's yeah. so clever. And it's again, yeah. it's one of those, and I, I do remember very specifically watching that when I first saw it in the cinema and thinking, I have no idea. I've no how idea. They did how they it, yeah. Did, did they really <laughs> go into space to do this? Because I, I yeah. and when you find out that actually it's just a very polished piece of glass, yeah. you think that's the simplest trick in the world. It's, the pen is literally on the bit of glass and they're rotating the glass yeah. slowly to give it the impression yeah. of it floating around. And you yeah, think, which is just fantastic. Yeah. You know, I could have done that at home. Yeah. I didn't because yeah. I wasn't clever enough to think of that. It took, you know, <laughs> it took someone, Stanley Kubrick, saying to these guys, "I need a pen floating around the cabin of a of a Pan Am space clipper." Yeah, go away yeah. and do it, and they go away and think, "All right, bit of glass." Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. What? And that's yeah. why these guys are geniuses. Now they're just you know a couple Absolutely. of strokes on a computer and they, it'd be done. Oh yeah, yeah, it's just done. Yeah. yeah, they had to there think no about pen. that. They had to go and test it. They had to try it out. They had to film it, and it's just. Yeah, yeah, it's it's this the 2001 is a hymn to the glories of the pla- of the practical effect. Yeah. You know, there's weight yeah. to everything. There's weight to the there models, is. you know, you really feel that those spaceships are actually there, you know, yeah. and it's just yeah, it's I'm, I'm, they're just about to go for another spacewalk. And, oh god, it's so brilliant. <laughs> you know, just wonderful. In fact, no, they're not. I tell you what, they're doing this bit. This is the bit, actually. I'm now watching the bit. This will make no sense to anybody who's sort of sitting at home. Why are you watching the film? It's not doing a bloody commentary. It's, I'm watching <laughs> no, the bit not. now where I'm not. I've, I've, sort of, I've done so many commentaries. I've got into commentary mode. So and here we have. <laughs> but they're, they're in the pod trying to discuss the problems so that Hal can't hear them oh, and yes. how Lip yeah. reads them. And um, Arthur C. Clarke always said that was the only bit of the film he didn't like. He didn't write that bit. That was Kubrick's idea. He thought that was silly. He said, you know, I can can deal with Star Child. I can deal with all the rest of it. I can deal with monoliths Mm. and all the rest. I can't deal with a computer lip reading. You know, (laughs) he just just wasn't having it. 
I thought was a really clever idea because they have they've gone out is, the way yeah. to to block off all sound to Hal yeah. so he can't yeah. hear them. And they think they're getting away with it, but obviously Hal can see directly through the, the window of the pod and lip read. Yeah. And why wouldn't he be able to lip read? He's a perfect artificial intelligence who can give commentary on artworks because he does that, exactly. as you said with Bowman earlier that, on. Exactly. So yeah. Why so wouldn't why he be able to lip read? Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's a very important scene because. Again, it kind of proves they're not as clever as they think they are. No, no. You know, okay, we're supposed to be the pinnacle of human evolution. We're still idiots who leave a window where an artificial intelligence can lip read us while we're trying to plot its downfall, you know? So, you know, it's all about human fallibility as well as mechanical and electronic fallibility, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah, so it's it's very important to see that one. Yeah, it's the scene that gives Hal that intelligence to go... Do you know what? Yes. They're plotting my downfall. I'll plot theirs first. And that adds the slightly sinister edge to him as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's that wonderful bit. It's thinking about it, I guess it's a little bit comparable. Bear with me on this one because you might not see on, it at first. <laughs> In Michael Mann's Manhunter, there's the, right, the okay. brilliant scene where he goes to see um, Hannibal Lecter, Brian Cox, yep. absolutely brilliant. Yep. I, I don't oh, care what anybody says, he was the best Hannibal Lecter. Brilliant. I actually and, agree with you on that one. <laughs> He's superb. He yeah. he gets he gets the, the cop's phone number. He manages to yes. sort of, you know, play the phone. And there's this wonderful shot of Brian Cox just sitting there sort of thinking, I've got this now, what do I do with it? And he doesn't mm. say anything and he doesn't move. You can just it's all to do with his facial expression, his body language. Yeah. And it's it's a similar sort of thing. You just get that sort of close up of that big red eye and you think yeah. he knows. What's it? There he yeah. is. There's the red eye looking at me as I speak, and it's like, oh, he's figured this out. He's one step ahead. Oh my god, you know. And he's that sort of implacability of him, a bit like the Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Thing, where he's not gibbering and and screaming and all the rest of it. He's just very calm. And yeah. So it's how? It's, and how? It's amazing how the. Go on. Go on. Sorry, it's sorry, amazing how that, that that it's amazing how the, the red light just being there and focus on that red light can give you so much interpretation of how Hal's feeling, even though it does nothing oh, yeah. other than shine yeah. as a red light. It doesn't change. I know, yeah. It's it, just it, on. It's used, it's used to express him being sinister, him being yeah. curious, him being yeah. workmanlike. It's exactly yeah. the same bloody prop every yeah. time, but there's something about the way they film it and the way the, the, the actors react to it. Yeah. It manages it just, to, like, yes, you're right, it conveys yeah. emotions, and yet it's just... And it, <laughs> It would have been very different. You know, they did consider at one point actually having like a robot that wandered around oh. the ship. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah, no. You know, glad we, they didn't we, go for that one. <laughs> I, I love Robbie the robot from, you know, Forbidden Planet and all the rest of that. I, 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 no, that's not what I want. No, to wouldn't work one. I want this. I, I like the idea that we don't really see where he is until the very end yeah. of the film. Then we yeah. see where he is, where he's... Physical inside his brain, yeah, you know, yeah. inside his yeah. brain, yeah, which yeah. you couldn't have done in with a robot. You know, they'd have ended up just no. shooting him with a ray gun. Yeah, you know, this this idea that you have to physically enter him, yeah, and perform surgery, fatal yes. surgery. You know, yeah. that that is why that's again why that scene is so emotional. Yeah, I think that Hal is being physically violated yes, at the same absolutely. time as being murdered. You know, it's not yeah. just a simple case of throwing a switch. No, they've act, you know, no, they can't just switch him off, can they? No, entered his body and he's destroying his memories, which is a horrible, 
horrible yeah. way to go, isn't it? You yeah. Know, it's, it's almost like senility, isn't it? It's almost like they've induced, Bowman induces senility in him. That you yeah. know, he starts taking yeah. away his cognitive functions and his memories until he's sort of, yeah. all he's got left is Daisy, which yes. I'm welling up just thinking about Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sad. It, really is. it is. Oh, it's, it's an amazingly sad scene because, yeah, as you say, yeah. it, it's like they're cutting away small parts of his brain, and as they cut yep. away, he loses that yep. part of him. He forgets what's yep. going on and gets back to the. Yep. I guess his first yep. introduction to people when he says, yes, you know, he, "Hello, gentlemen." I've, I know a song right. that I've yeah. been taught. Yeah. So, that's right. And he's, he's, we meet his creator in 2010, yeah. Doctor Chandra. Yeah. And you yes. know, this was like. You know, this is Dr. Chandra switching him on. He's gone right the way back to that. You yeah. know, this, this once powerful artificial intelligence that ran an entire computer and got people yeah. more or less safely to, to Jupiter. It wasn't <laughs> his fault that, you know, it all went horribly wrong. No. But, you know, he just... Well. He, he, to be fair, he succeeded in his mission. Let's not he forget did. that. He did, he yes. got yeah. someone there and that yeah. person then went on to meet or encounter the aliens. Whatever so, it was, yeah. yeah. Whatever it was. So, and in fact, I think... Yeah. I think Bowman actually tells him that in 2010. It's been a while since I've seen 2010. But I think it, it, actually says, likewise, yeah. Well, Hal is sort of kind of sad and contemplative, and he says, you know, I did, I'm sorry I let you down. Or something. He says, you didn't let us down. You completed your mission. mission. Yeah, yeah. And so he did. He did what he was told to do. He just went about it. Absolutely. In, um, yeah, not, not the best way possible. It's um, No, yeah. no. He's a complex no. character, is Hal. He's a complex character. <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> Yeah. Any favourite scenes? So, you know, the bits you could just watch again and again and again. I like the bit from just before the planetary conjunction. I like that all the way up to the bit with the Star Child. That's my favourite <laughs> bit. Is the reason the whole film? The, it's a whole bloody film. I just yeah. I mean, of course, everybody has favourites. We all love yeah. the Stargate. We all yes. love the Stargate. Even people who are yeah. too too cool for school and will tell you, oh, no, it's, you know, I like the Hal bit the best. No, you don't. You love the yeah. Stargate because it is just, yeah. to this day, it's one of those things you just sit and look at it. You think no one has done a special effect like that no. again since that, that no. has that kind of impact. The no. the final shot, which has, I have no shame about this at all. It's reduced me to tears, That that just that sort of cold look of the star child at the end. Yes. I don't know why I find that so moving. Mm. But I do. I just find that inc- the way it's just sort of staring down at the earth, you know, and he's full yes. of all this potential. And it's like, yeah. wow, you know, sort of. And that's where I think the whole sort of, it takes you off on, that's where it becomes the most mystical and the most sort of, you know, sort of almost quasi-religious for me. You know, yes. it, we, we're encountering something here we, we don't understand. I might have my interpretation of what it is, but I don't really yeah. understand it. And no. you go away from the film with more answers than more, more questions than answers. Yes, and that's a good yeah. thing. Most films that yeah. annoys the oh, hell yeah. out of me. With two thousand and one, yeah. I don't want to know the answers. There's yeah. something very, very, very spiritual about it being just out of my reach. Yeah, you know, the answer I mean, is there. It's I can almost touch it, but it's it's just elusive, and it's been elusive since nineteen seventy nine. And yeah. may remain so. You know, I don't. It'll, I don't want. It'll always be like that. Yeah. I don't want yeah. it answered. I, I want a little bit of mystery. We all want a little bit of mystery in life. And you know, yeah. sometimes if you can get it through a film, then yeah, great. Why not? Go for it. You know. So uh, go back and just watch it again, and not just watch it again. Either, yeah. yeah. Another another yeah. great scene, which is just so powerful, so powerful, is when Moonwatcher first discovers what he can do with that bone. 
Yeah. It's just a mid-shot of him sitting on his haunches, yeah. and he sort of picks his bone up, and also Sprack Zarathustra starts to play, so we know yes. this is a key thing. And yes. he just very slowly starts tapping the ground with it, and then you can see yeah. this brilliant guy called, um, he's Daniel Richter, I think, was the, the guy who played, he, he was a professional right. mime. And he yeah, spent yeah. a lot of time at zoos watching apes to get the motion. Yeah, and then yeah. he sort of choreographed all the others. But he plays Moonwatcher. And it's a brilliant little bit of a performance because you can see in his eyes, you can see him yeah. moving up the evolutionary ladder in his eyes yeah. as he suddenly realizes, oh, look what I can do. And then there's this yeah. glorious bit where you reach the climax of the music where he's just smashing bones with it. It's, it's sort of yeah. combination of pure joy and skull, pure rage. It? He hits a big skull which fractures and then he yeah. cuts to a very, very, very brief, almost subliminal shot of a pig falling. Yeah. Yeah. And that and he's it's so sort of economic that you know, nowadays you'd you'd see them going out and doing a hunt. Oh yeah. Sort of trucking yeah. down the, the and there'll be another twenty five minutes of that. You know, and this is just yeah. like but you whack, don't, whack, whack, kill, kill. We've they've moved up the evolutionary ladder and then he just cuts to them yeah. sitting eating the meat. We've got it yeah. and we've got it in you yeah. know, thirty seconds. And it's yeah. such a brilliant shot. And he's, it's it's one of those moments where the music just works so well. The way yeah. he times the smashes of the of the bone against the other yeah. bone fragments to the, the music. Yeah. Just wonderful. Just because it's one wonderful. of those those odd things to think how slow the film can be that there showing that jump up the evolution scale is actually really fast and they could have they could have lingered on it, like you say, doing a hunt and all that type of thing. They just yeah, don't. They exactly. just go, and no, that's happened. Just get it over and done with, because that's an important yeah. part of the story, but we've got other things to do, so let's get... You know, and the fact, everybody said it's so slow. I mean, for God's sake, we jump millions of years in a split <laughs> second. I mean, how much faster <laughs> yeah. do you want this bloody film yeah. to be, you know? Yeah. We, we literally go from, from eight men to nuclear weapons in the, literally <laughs> the blink of an eye, and people yeah. say, oh, it's a bit slow, isn't it? No, it's not. <laughs> Look at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a highly I think accelerated it's... film. It's looking at it through the, the eye of someone who goes to cinema now. I mean, I, you know, yeah. you said about remaking this film. You yeah, couldn't yeah. remake it now because the studios, well, you can't have that half hour at the start. Of That's Nord right. Speaking. Yeah, yeah. You can't, can't have, have that have three minutes of screeching. I mean, admission, yeah. what's that all about? And all this yeah. stuff where you're just playing the boogies on you, get rid of all that. Yeah, get rid of all that. We'll get, we're cool. we're going to get, you know. You'll probably end up half an hour film. You'll get James Horner, and yes, and it'll be half an hour long because I'll just yeah. zip through it, and then they'll add loads of stuff at the end that we don't need. Well, what yes. they'll do is at the beginning, they'll do the eight-man bit, and then you'll have this long section where we meet Bowman and Poole and their family, and one yeah. of them would be going through a divorce, and the other one would yeah. be, you know, sort of be estranged from their their daughter or their son, and we'll have to go through all of that before we get onto the spaceship. And you yeah, think... You've missed yeah. the point, it's right? Really that's, not, that's not what it's about, you know? Just stop it. There's a wonderful episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes to buy a vibrating chair. And uh, I think he goes to buy something else, but he ends up buying a vibrating, you know, recliner chair. And when he first sits in it, he sort of sits there and it starts to vibrate and it starts going into the stargate. <laughs> you start getting big close-ups of his eye. <laughs> so, you know, it still turns up even now, all these oh, years yeah. later, people are still referencing but, it. Yeah. It, it turns up everywhere, doesn't it? I mean, I was just oh, talking to someone about um, about Wally, the Disney oh, yes. film, um, yeah. and their onboard computer is basically Hal's eye in of a steering wheel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, yeah, yeah. they even use the the opening theme for when man gets yes. up for the first time from his chair. So it's exactly yeah. And like I say, just that, there. that bit of music is now no longer a classical piece of music. It yeah. is the opening theme. Exactly. It is you know it's yeah. become iconic as that. Yeah. 
you know, did, I did they not use that? Even. I've got a feeling they actually used that on the television coverage of the moon landing. I think they were using also Sprax Zarathustra as the music because it, it had become already so did. become so yeah. ingrained in the public, even after only a few yeah. months as being the music from 2001. Yeah. And I think they used the Blue Danube as well, I seem to remember. And this might be my faulty memory. I was very young when this happened, but I seem to remember <laughs> the Blue Danube playing as well. So uh, it, It's highly possible that it would make sense to use them because um, yes, they were course. already in, in public mind because of the of film. Course. Yeah. And again, yeah. Blue Danube is one of those things, isn't it, that once upon a time it was this marvellous little waltz and now it's that bit with yes. the space station. Which, exactly, yeah. You, when you think about it, I mean, it, what a perfect piece of music to use for uh, that scene because yeah. it's... They are sort of locked in a little ballet, the, the, the shuttle well, they are. on the space station, where yeah. they're sort of rotating to sort of get synced with each other. Yeah. And it's all done without words. Nobody yeah. speaks during this sequence. No. It's like this wonderful little dance routine yes. set to this marvellous... It's like waltz. a waltz, it's, isn't it, I suppose, it is, yeah. It's yeah. the most romantic part of the film, and I mean romantic in the sort of the, the classical sense, not the sort of lovey-dovey yeah. nonsense. No, it's no. the most romantic part of the film because this is the sort of the romance of space travel before yeah. before the, the shit hits the fan and Hal goes loopy <laughs> and ruins it all. But this this is the romance. This is, for 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 Haywood Floyd sitting on the shuttle. It's boring as hell. He's yes. you know he's reading his he's iPad. Asleep, he isn't he? Care. He's asleep <laughs> and he, all the rest of it. No one cares. He's, he's sort of trying to drink his drink and all the rest of it. But for us watching it, this is like. Yeah. Wow, this is the future. This is what it's good. Yeah. You know, this is the future that I was promised when I was a child. You know, yeah. I was going to yeah. be living on the moon or possibly Mars. And, you know, I was going to be yeah. commuting to work on a jetpack. I was lied to. Yeah. I want my money back. I think I was yeah, let down badly by robots. that one. Yeah, yeah. People wonder why people of our generation are old and grumpy. That's why, because <laughs> we were bloody told we were going to live on Mars and we didn't. That's why we're so grumpy. <laughs> so I, I didn't even get my hoverboard that Steven Spielberg promised I me. I know. Man. I mean, come on. You know, they, they can't keep making these promises and then not let us have them. Mind you, a hoverboard at my age, I don't think that's a good combination, is it? But, <laughs> but, well, <laughs> you never sure know. Gonna, it's, it's either going to be me or an innocent bystander that's going to get hurt and probably both of us, to be honest. It's not, it's not going to end probably. well for anyone. So, uh, but yeah, you know, would you like a Hal in your house? I'm not sure I'd want Hal, but, you know, it's... Um, well, how far is Hal away from Alexa? Absolutely. I was just about to say, you know, with these things, mm. you know, like... Yeah. Let, let's, see if, let's see if we can do this. Hey, Google. Let's see how many people have now freaked out because their Google has just gone, hello. But uh, they do yeah. on TV all the time, don't they? Hail, they hey do, Google. yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, is that not actually just how sitting in the corner well, of your look, room? Yeah, well, if you look at sort of uh, Amazon's ring, their doorbell mm. thing, it is just yes. a big eye. Just a big it looks, eye. If it, wasn't red, if it was red, it would be Hal, wouldn't it? I wonder yeah. how many people watch 2001 and then go home and disconnect everything because, you know, we haven't learned anything. We've, ta- we've now turned our entire homes over to these things. Yeah. You know, yeah. they could lock us out of our homes and yeah. then, you know, set fire to them with an electrical fault or something. And yeah. we've, we've learned nothing. We've learned nothing no. from 2001. And we deserve to, deserve to have our houses burned down. We're bloody idiots. <laughs> we should watch this film. It's a cautionary tale. Go and watch it and yes. learn. Yes. Watch and learn. Yes. So yeah. yeah, so yeah, that's another one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Hal is like like the iPad. Hal was in our homes now. Yeah, or, or Hal's descendants. Yes, are in our homes now. You yes. know, it's uh, yeah, marvelous. Wow. I, hadn't, I hadn't considered that. Well, though, that's brilliant. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm going to go away and think think <laughs> about that. One. 
<laughs> and I'm going to switch everything. Actually, I won't. I won't have those things in the house because I'm old and I'm neurotic, so I won't have them in the house. But I'm doubly so now. It's like, oh dear. So, You're yes. definitely getting one. <laughs> They really ought just to get. I don't know whether Douglas Rain's still alive or not. But if, if somebody should pay him just to, you know, oh, sort of do the voice. You know, Alexa, please, please play Led Zeppelin. I don't mm. think you want to do that, Dave. You know that would be <laughs> so cool. <laughs> oh yeah, so good. That would be marvelous. That would. So, be I, I, I would have one if if that happened. I would have that, and I would have it installed in every room in the house just just for the sheer just so joy of that. hearing that voice, of hearing Hal saying "Good morning, Kevin." <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's not like I'm obsessed with the film, honestly. So, uh, it is. Yeah, I, I was going to yeah. say, how do you think the film holds up now? I, I obviously, you still love it, but again, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, one You will yeah. always get with with this series that you're doing. You will get bias. You know, yeah. these are people talking about their favourite films. I will hear nothing yeah. bad about this film, but I think it still holds up because it's, yeah. you know, your case set in two thousand and one, and two thousand and one didn't play out like that. But just ignore that no. bit. If you look at it, it hasn't aged at all. There's nothing in no, it true. that I could say, you know, that you look at some science fiction films from the sixties, even later into the seventies, you think, oh god, yeah. you know, it's, they're great, yeah. but. They don't hold up today because, you know, the technology is not there. This still works. This is timeless. Yeah, yeah. We haven't yeah. really surpassed any of this at all. And because it yeah. has that spiritual element to it that, that I find, I think it's always going to be timeless. I think yeah. people will always watch it and they will always ponder, where are we coming from? Where are we going? Are we alone in the universe? These are the big, big questions it's asking. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, those are timeless. Until someone finds alien life it will still be hugely relevant film because we will always want to know where we came from or where we go. Whether we're religious or whether we're atheist, we still want to yeah. know where did we come from? How did we get did here? We what, from, what's yeah. next? Where are we going next? Yeah. Is there something out there bigger than us? Yeah, which better is the major major storyline and an awful lot of science fiction that's out there, isn't it? That, that, of course it is. Where because have we come that from? Is, yeah. Where have we come from? Where are we going? Because this is, you know, the, the, these are questions that, they bother science every bit as much as they bother religion. Yeah, you know, scientists yeah. spend as much time pondering these these questions uh, as priests do, and you know I don't think either of them have ever really got the answer. To be honest, they've got no. like like me, I have an interpretation of two thousand and one. They have interpretations of where we come from, where we belong in the universe, and is there something bigger? Yeah. But yeah. it's still all very vague. We still haven't quite got to the bottom of it, and. Mm. again long may that continue because i want that mystery yeah i want that mystery yeah. in my life you know i don't want i don't want the answer i i will be the first no. person to be leaping with joy if they ever intercept a, a radio signal from from outer space <laughs> if, if someone actually could prove to me there was life out there i would be the happiest man in the world i still have hope, no, but, it? yeah yeah. Who knows how much life I've got left in me? I'm hoping that I've still got enough for us to to, to to me to wake up one day to hear NASA saying we've picked up a radio signal and it's repeating. It must be artificial, you know. It yeah. must be being created by something. I would love that. But there's another yeah. part of me would think, well, there's one little mystery in my life gone. You know, the one bit of my, you know, another bit, another bit of life that's become concrete. And it's like, I'd, yeah. I'd probably re revert to 2001 even more then because that's, you know, that would still be unknowable. So, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, that will always be there. The, the mystery of 2001 there, you will outlive us all. Yeah. Yeah. 
And no one will ever know, as you say, because we've lost the only two people that probably knew what oh, it was all about. The only two people who did know, exactly. Yeah. Wherever they are now, whatever you believe in, they're probably having a right laugh at us too. <laughs> really good, trying, trying to make sense of this film. They're probably sitting there thinking, bloody idiots, look at them, they're talking absolute <laughs> nonsense. And then Kubrick will say, oh yeah, but... And Clark will go, mm, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it'd be one of those sort of conversations. <laughs> it didn't mean anything. We never had a meaning for it in the it first mean place. Anything. That is actually one of the great horrors of life, isn't it? That it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's one of the great horrors exactly. of 2001. Actually, there might not be any meaning to any of this. It might no. just be a space film. you know. And if you yeah. want to watch it as a space film, yeah. excellent you will still enjoy it as a space film you don't yeah, have yeah. to interpret it you don't have to come up with highfalutin nonsense like i come up with you can just yeah. watch it as a beautifully shot magnificent yeah. looking space adventure film and it still yeah. works it still works on that level yeah. so well but apply some, yourself some element to it sorry some apply element to it, it. Apply your thoughts to it. classic music oh, yeah. It's MTV classical. they are music videos yeah. yeah they were the first music yeah. videos absolutely and you know you can see why he thought that when he was using them as as temporary cues, you know, because he was just thinking, yeah. "We just need some music. Let's let, let's edit the film to the music." Yeah, which is yeah. I mean, if that's not a music video, what is? You know? oh, so, exactly. That, it, good old Stanley. He got it? there first again. You know, <laughs> it's only wonder he's my favourite director. The man was a monster, but what a genius! You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He didn't make many films, but the ones he made were very very good. Wow. There isn't a duff one among them. They're, they're, they're all no. absolute masterpieces. Even Eyes Wide Shut, I, I will still defend that film to the day I die. It's not his best, but... No, it's not, but... You know, and to be, it's got something to it, doesn't it, yeah? Oh, it has. It's, it's definitely got something. And to be fair, after 2001, nothing is as good as that ever. Cinema hasn't been as good as that. I mean, Kubrick couldn't top it. So, you know, nothing has been as good as 2001. So there you are. Yeah, OK. Big question now. Can you sell 2001 to me in about 30 seconds? We've been talking for nearly two bloody hours. You don't think I've sold it already? Um, yeah, okay. Just if, sum it up in 30 seconds. Just sum it up. If you want some proper hard science fiction written and directed by two people at the absolute top of their game and a film which will leave you scratching your head in a very nice way at the end of it, and which will give you the best hallucinogenic trip you'll ever have without <laughs> chemicals, this is the film for you. Everybody should watch it once. Even if you don't like it, that doesn't matter. That's, that's fine. I get that people don't like it. Do yourself yep. a favour. Watch it at least once because there is nothing, nothing like this film anywhere else in cinema. Brilliant. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Yeah. Cool. No, well, thank you. I, I, I talked for a hell of a long time, longer than I expected to. But so. it's fine. <laughs> Absolutely fine. I'm sure I can edit it down some. I'll, I'll be back next week to carry on. I've still it. got loads more, so I'll be back. I'll be back. You know, don't worry. You haven't got rid of me yet. <laughs> well, maybe we're going to a sequel. Who knows? <laughs> no, you wouldn't want to inflict that on anybody. Trust me. So. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. That that was a that was a real treat to be able to talk about that at such length. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you out uh, there in the world? I have my website, the very clumsily named the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Film and Television. As I often say in podcasts, I, when I started this, in ironically enough, two thousand and one, <laughs> that was the year I launched my. I know. That wasn't an accident. I've got to tell you, that wasn't an accident. Um, <laughs> if, if I'd realised I was going to have to say the Encyclopedia of Fantastic <laughs> Film and Television quite so often, I would have thought of something a bit, bit, bit briefer. E-O-F-F-T. 
eoffftv.com is where you'll find that. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Just look me up, um, eoffftv, or I'm one of the Kevin Lyonses. My, um, there's, there's loads of us. We're, we're common as muck. But I'm the one with um, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart from, from Rear Window as my right. avatar. I'm sort of sitting there peering out, looking, come, come and say hello. Tell me I'm an idiot for all the nonsense I've spoken. <laughs> or come and tell me, come and tell me, you know, what, what great insight I've offered. I'll, I'll take both. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a proud man. So uh, do come and say hello. And uh, yeah, uh, we can, we can talk more on social media about how wonderful 2001 is. Sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Marvellous. Okay. Right. Thank you very much then. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Gab. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Thank you again, Kevin, for that chat about 2001. It was very good to talk to you about that film and hear your passions about it. As Kevin said, you can find him on the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Film and Television out there on the world of social media. In the show notes, you will find links to a documentary about See You Next Wednesday by John Landis. Um, Well, it's not by John Landis, it's about all the films... John Bernandes has made that see you next Wednesday has appeared in as mentioned by Kevin in the chat there's also a link to Echoes by Pink Floyd to that scene of the going into the Stargate from 2001 we also mentioned in the chat so have a look at those in the show notes next time on the podcast I will be talking to Sarah Cleaver about the film To Die For starring Nicole Kidman, um, directed by Gus Van Sant. It is a bit of a difficult one to find. It is available to buy, though, on DVD and on Blu-ray. It is well worth a watch before our chat. So here is Sarah's trailer for that episode. I'm trying to think of how I would do it if we screened it at Zodiac. Nicole Kidman's best role, morally ambivalent, drop-dead aesthetics, and David Cronenberg cameo. That's probably... That's probably how I'd sell it. Thank you very much again for that, Sarah. And that will be our next episode. Episodes are going to go to being fortnightly. So that will be up in two weeks' time. So for me, for now, till then, bye-bye. Finally, thanks to Acast for hosting the website and to Max Smith for the theme tune composition. To get in touch with the podcast, remember that website is www.myfavoritefilm.com.